And now, ladies and gentlemen, Kawhi. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to YBR Presents Kawaii, a look at the history of Japanese horror in cinema. Last time we were here, we uh, were immersed in the intricately documented and ever-entertaining world of kaiju films, a section of the tokusatsu realm that has been ever-influential on our culture. And while the trend of influential Japanese cinema will certainly not stop, today we have a look at a more off-to-the-side title produced as just one of the many films from a studio not known for instilling terror, the world of... Shochiku never relied upon terror of beings from other realms or monsters made from science. Rather, they were more known for the melodrama of folks like Ozu. But for a brief period, as Criterion's Eclipse collection so aptly titled one of their sets, horror came to Shochiku. And while it did not have a history documented as much as the likes of a Gojira or Mothra, the legacy of these beings from the stars that bring the world uh, bring the world to its knees have proven to be everlasting. We speak, of course, of Goki, the body snatcher from hell. And in order to get down to it, we must introduce ourselves and jump right in. My name is Zach, and with me, as always, is the Ballyhoo International Correspondent, Rashmi. Delighted to be here, Zach. Welcome back. So we have uh, arrived into the uh, into the uh, end of the swing in sixties, as it were, here in Japan. And uh, I got to say, the the so far our journey has taken us through some interesting uh, bends of the river. Starting based on where we started, I didn't think we would be where we're currently at, and yet some of the imagery that we had with a page of madness. And some of the crazier stuff going on in there seems to sort of match up with some of the insanity of Goki the Body Hunter. Not in terms of themes or even strict visuals, but it's just the mood that I get. <laughs> um, That's a great connection, Zach. Yeah. Totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, we're very much hitting modernity, and we're going to talk a little bit about what was going on in the world when this movie came about. But you're absolutely right. There are still connections to where we started, which I think is really interesting to note. Yeah. And and we're going to, we're not going to, we're not going to, uh mince words here unlike what we've talked about where everything has seemingly had some form of intricacy to discuss in terms of background of production which is usually the thing that i crave this is one that has nada <laughs> this there's nothing yes it's it's a very much a cult film there's little to no information about the production history in fact i was looking up an interview with the uh, kind of uh, American actress that's in this film. And she doesn't remember the movie. <laughs> like, you know, do you remember the director at all? Nope. Where, what do you remember? Well, we walked around the desert and there was this guy with a hole in his head. That's basically all she remembered. So, uh, okay. yeah, so it's been hard to come by many details on this movie. But that, I don't think, prevents us from having some really interesting discussions about it. So. No, not at all. This film is so filled to the brim. You'd almost expect Criterion to have already done a Blu-ray of it, but... I did get the sense, and I don't, and I wonder about this a little bit with any film we're going to talk about. Um, but certainly, like we could take this back to the Invisible Man appears and Invisible Man versus the Human Fly. 
the quality of these prints is shaky. Uh, and I have a feeling that there isn't as great a print available, at least for American markets, of Goki. Because there are noticeable rips and tears in the quality of this print through Criterion's Eclipse collection. And I would get the sense that <clears throat> this is something that Criterion wants to put out but can't move all of its resources into creating bonus features or spending like like thousands of dollars sending people out to try to like dig more into the history of this film. I get the feeling that it's it's just not worth that investment. And yet there is so much subtext going on in this film. Like there's like Planet of the Apes level allegory mm -hmm. happening in Absolutely. this movie. And it's actually given the fact that it comes out in the same year as Planet of the Apes, like it. It's uh, it's interesting to see the confluence of how 1968 becomes yeah. this crux point for everybody, which is you know not too dissimilar to why Ballyhoo on the regular feed has a cutoff of like anything after 1968 we're not touching at the moment because that's the moment that things change, mm -hmm. um, and we could talk about the change, but we're not gonna as mm -hmm. of now we're not gonna go beyond that. Mm -hmm. Goki is just I think it's it's the most explicit commentary of that particular moment that I have witnessed in a yeah. while. And yeah. I think it has a lot to do with an industry outside of Hollywood. I had, I think it has everything to do with being outside of Hollywood. Um, oh, interesting. I, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's at the end of the studio era in Japan as well. Japan's studio era very much mimics the U S one in terms of mm -hmm. its control, its policies, and it's, it's kind of, it fell apart at the same time as well. And so that's what's happening here. Uh, and that we're seeing, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, you're right. It does have an independent spirit to it. It's very anti-establishment. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I think we'll get into that in more detail in a bit. But Which, yeah, you're right. Right. Because I, and I, and how I would compare it to the American perspective is that I, I feel like 68 is the start of it, but we don't get entrenched in the weeds of explicit commentary until like maybe a year or two later. Like mm -hmm. we, we have a, there is a gap period. 68 is, mm -hmm. is, has this, very interesting right. dichotomy of the studio era folding and things like Bonnie and Clyde, Rosemary's baby, easy rider on the mark. Yeah. So, you know what I think might be a difference and we'll probably get into this a little bit more detail in our next movie, but, um, what the what Japan had that I think the U.S. didn't have as much of at the same time was a new wave, very similar to the French new wave, mm -hmm. a very similar movement to the French new wave in Japan. Like I said, we'll probably talk about it next week because our or sorry, next podcast, because our next podcast is going to be a very much 100 percent new wave movie. Yes. But independent productions started in kind of the early 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and you had folks like Oshima and other new wave directors. Oshima was making movies about like student protests and things like this, right? right? So I think a little bit of that sensibility maybe crept in a little bit earlier in Japan than it did here. Yeah, because I'm not seeing, if I'm seeing those those pieces of imagery in 60s, uh, primarily 60s fair in America, it tends to be, a very conservative agenda, not to not yeah. to make this a political right. thing, but it is, right. it's what so it is. I yeah. think, yeah, Japan is probably going to be more similar to France, right? So we're mm -hmm. getting more like 
Godard and Truffaut and those folks, right? Yeah. Getting a little more of that sensibility here, both in terms of the stylistic impacts as well as, yeah, the messages the movies have and, mm-hmm. and what they're saying. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. So what, let, let's dive into it. Now, you've got sure. our little regular segment of Culture Corner here. <laughs> culture I, Corner, yeah. Give, give, us a, give us a sense of yeah. what's happening at the moment that something like Goki lands in Japanese cinemas. Absolutely. So I'll get to the historical context in just a moment, but there are a couple of cultural things I wanted to pull out. So the first thing is, Zach, in our last uh, podcast episode, you asked me a little bit about like, what am I missing in the subtitles? Right. And so Mm. I was kind of watching this film. There is something I wanted to dig into a little bit here. I have to take a little bit of a detour into Japanese language to be able to explain it. Once I take my detour, I'll come back and apply it to where we see that in this film. Okay. Um, So Japanese. uh, So last podcast episode, we talked a little bit about the Japanese writing system. This time I want to talk about something that is very unique to Japanese that does not in, uh, exist in English, which is why when you're subtitling, this is not something you're able to indicate in the subtitles. And what it is, is that um, issues of status and gender are baked into the Japanese language. And so let me give mm. you an example that's kind of separate from the movie first, and then we'll apply it to the movie. Okay. So, um, so if I want to say something like I ate a meal or I ate some rice or whatever, right? So um, let me just tell you about kind of different ways I can say that, right? Mm-hmm. So so when I talk about status, dif- if differences in status, status is typically typified by difference in age, right? So people who are older are considered higher status. Um, and also people who are in like socially respectable roles, right? So right. doctor, professor, politician, uh, head of a company. Podcaster. You know, those yeah, I got Podcaster, you. <laughs> absolutely. We're way at the top of What's the What's the Japanese character for that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so those socially respectable professions are up. So anybody who's at that level is kind of considered higher status than, and then everybody under them is kind of lower status. And so when we speak, so first of all, they're kind of aspects of the language that are structural. There's kind of a more polite way to speak and there's a more direct way to speak. So if I were to speak in the polite way and say I ate something, I would say tabemashita. But if I were saying it in a direct way, I would say tabeta. So you can kind of, there's at the end of those two words, there's a little difference, right? And that's actually a grammatical structural difference in terms of politeness versus direct. Now, what gets more complicated is vocabulary itself can works its way into this, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I'm talking to an equal at work and I wanted to say I just had a meal, I would say gohan tabemashita. Gohan being the meal and tabemashita being I ate, right? Mm-hmm. So gohan tabemashita. That's just a neutral way of saying it. That is polite, right? right. Now. If I were talking to someone of higher status to me, so I'm talking to a doctor or a professor, or president of a company, whatever, high status person. If I'm talking to a higher status person, I change that verb to kind of put myself down while I'm talking to this higher status person. So instead of saying gohan tabemashita, I would say something like gohan itadakimashita. So that word is different, right? Uh-huh. And that's me putting myself down when talking to a higher status person. Now it gets even more complicated because if I wanted to ask that person, have you eaten lunch or have you eaten? So I'm talking now to the higher status person. So I want to put that person up. There's now a third word for to eat, which is meshiagarimashita. So those three words are different. Neutral is tabemashita, putting myself down, itadakimashita, and then putting the person I'm talking to up, 
召し上がりました。Right? So, so that's first, that's another way to indicate kind of status and how we talk to each other depending on status. Now, there's a, a further complication、uh, in that there is a, I'll call it, I'll use a very scientific, scientific term for it. There is man Japanese. So there is、oh, no. Japanese that is only spoken by men. And those are words that men use. And, and, you know, remember I just said there's a direct way of speaking. They're more likely to speak in that direct form, whereas women are more likely to speak in that polite form.、Um, and so if a man is kind of saying, I just ate a meal, he would say, Meshi kutta. So those are all totally different words. Okay. And so that's how kind of status is baked in. Now, how does this relate to our, our film that we just watched? So at the beginning, we have kind of the people who consider themselves to be highest status in this plane are that military contractor and the politician. Right. Okay. So they, they kind of, and we see that, you know, body language and tone of voice will indicate to you they're the ones kind of lording it over this plane.、Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah.、Um, and so they, when they talk to others, Um, I'm going to I'm going to use just the use of the word you, Y-O-U, right? The word Y-O-U in English, of course, you,、uh, the word you. I'm going to kind of show how that how they use those and how that changes throughout the film. So first of all, you is not a word typically Japanese people don't use that word as often as we do in English. Like, you know, if I were talking to you, Zach, I'd say like, hey, Zach, did you have lunch or whatever? Right. I use the word you.、Mm -hmm. Right. In Japanese, instead of you, I would probably just say like Zach-san. Or something,、mm -hmm. right? Okay.、Uh, and if you were a doctor, I would say Zak Sensei, right?、Uh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but in, in Japanese, there are like five or six words for the word you. And it's all tied into this status thing, right? So a relatively neutral, like if I'm talking to somebody equal or lesser than me, I might use anata for you. And I brought anata up last week as well because it's commonly a word used when like couples are talking to each other, right? So,、uh, so that's kind of a little more neutral.、Uh, I wouldn't use it if I were talking to someone higher status than me, but equal or lower status, it's okay. Now, If I'm talking to somebody younger than me, for example, right?、Yeah. I might choose to call them Kimi. When I want to use the word you, I use the word Kimi for you. Okay.、Mm -hmm. And so on this plane, the contractor and the politician call the pilot Kimi, right? Because、mm -hmm. he's younger than them, right? Now it's a little bit unusual because on a plane, obviously a pilot is relatively high status person too, right? And nobody else on the plane calls him that. It's just the two kind of guys who, Think they're at the top of the pyramid who basically do that. Right. Now, there's a there's a ruder version of the word you, which is what the contractor and the politician use when they're talking to the bomber.、Mm. And they call him Omae. Omae. That's a word that I never use. Even though I'm older now, I, I would never call somebody that to their face. It's, it's kind of a, there's definitely a rudeness implied in that, that you're really looking down on this person when you say that.、Um, so it really indicates a gulf in status. And then I'll give you the last one. Don't use this, this word because people get mad, but there's a really, really rude word for you, which is teme. And that's usually, honestly, if you use that word, you're probably preparing to fight that person. Like most of the time, you're going to hear, if you hear that word, you're going to hear it in like a Yakuza movie or something, right? Normally, in polite conversation with normal people, you're never going to use that word. So there are like four or five flavors of this one word, and they indicate how people feel about each other and how the power dynamic is structured between them. And that's something you're not going to see in the subtitles. Now, one last thing I want to call out about this because it's interesting because it migrates during the film. 
in the beginning of the film, of course, we know that the contractor is kind of sucking up to the politician and he's being very respectful towards the politician. And at that point in the beginning of the film, he calls him sensei. He calls to so the contractor when he's talking to the politician, he mm-hmm. calls him sensei. And he's using a very polite form of Japanese in speaking to him. Then, as we know, in the middle of the film, they have a bit of a falling out. And, you know, the contractor essentially gets the politician drunk and kind of really finds out what the politician is up to, gets pretty angry with him. Mm. At that point, he stops calling him sensei. He calls him anata, which is, remember that word I said for you that you use with somebody who's equal or lower to you. Um, So he starts using that and he starts speaking in a much more direct style. Like he's using imperatives. He's using the types of words he would not have used earlier in the film uh, when he's being all polite and kind of sucking up to the politician. So I thought that was really interesting. And it is something that it's just impossible to convey in subtitles. And I think it rarely comes up in something like a commentary because most of the people doing the commentaries for Criterion and Arrow don't speak Japanese. So they probably don't hear that. Although, like I said, you can pick up a lot of this through body language and tone of voice. Um, you really have to know the language to pick up on it. So I thought people might be interested to know that, that there's kind of an evolution in the language that characters are using based on how they're relating to each other. No, I think it's essential to understand that even though once understanding it, I don't know if it, it's, it is something that like ultimately, no, it's not imperative to enjoying the film, but I think it adds a, a necessary layer to yes. understanding the culture that you're ingesting. If you're, if, if you're watching a film from another country, I get the feeling that, for me personally, the more I know about that culture, the richer the film will feel. But if Absolutely. I'm just but if I'm just going for the base level story, like I, I remember like because this is something that I've been thinking about in the last couple of years, but not as far back as pre-pandemic. Like I went to go see Parasite. I wasn't strictly thinking about Korean culture uh, mm-hmm. or South Korean culture. I was thinking about how does this relate to my experience? Because of course that because that's the way I know how to best ingest a film while in a theater while eating popcorn. Mm-hmm. And you and everybody else, <laughs> ex- exactly. And thankfully, <laughs> Parasite was a film that spoke towards towards world problems and not just mm-hmm. South Korean problems. But right. it was wonderful to learn afterward about the 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 intricacies of that uh that class separation and that that mm-hmm. above the poverty line and very much below the poverty line uh, uh structure that's contained mm-hmm. in there so when i so when i'm watching something like goki or even mothra or invisible man appears it's nice to know what's going on with them at that moment and or what's something that's culturally relevant regardless of the era you're in so mm-hmm. that I can understand why somebody would enjoy this film, why mm-hmm. uh, they would make more of these films, and get get myself into the mindset. It makes it more richer for me. I'm not expecting everybody mm-hmm. who likes Gojira or Mothra mm-hmm. to necessarily yeah. care about what goes on in Japan. Right. Uh, but it's, I think... It, it adds another layer. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I compare it to like, you know, there are movies you saw as a child and you loved them as a child and then you watch them as an adult and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much stuff I missed and now it just makes this movie even better. Right. right. So, yeah. Yeah, and, it's absolutely, yeah. And I, th- and I think that that's, that's essential in a lot of respects to understanding how and why some of these stories get manufactured and made and why why class disparagement and class differences are... Are, are are actually very prevalent in what we've been talking about so far. Absolutely. Uh, yes. So to get how language plays into that, I think is 
Yeah, uh, probably one I of thought the more I, fascinating. To me, it was really ones. interesting. It was just really interesting to see how that language between them changed mm. as their relationship changed the movie. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the that's my language tip for the week. But uh, let me just pull up a couple other kind of points about culture. We covered this briefly in another episode, so I won't get into it too much detail. But just a kind of recap of the fact that for most of Japan's history, it was a intentionally an intentionally isolated country. Mm-hmm. Um, Japan did not seek to go abroad and call colonize, nor did they want colonizers to come in. It was a capital offense to leave the country and come back. So if you left, pretty much leave forever, because if you come back, you know, it was pain of death, basically, to come back. And the and the trade that they did with foreigners was only in a few select spots that were usually like islands off the main island uh, where they would meet, do the trade, and then you have to leave. Weren't they barely letting Britain in, even in remote? Britain, they like, were not. Since... They they preferred the Dutch. The Dutch, uh, because, yes, the Dutch, because sorry. Because the theory, the theory was that the Dutch were not as likely to proselytize because not mm. only were they afraid of colonialism, they were afraid of Christianity taking hold in yeah. Japan and undermining the government. Watch uh, silence, government, guys. <laughs> exactly. The government used Buddhism to prop up its power mm-hmm. uh, and so Christianity was a direct threat uh, so so yeah so so um, so consequently to this day there is not a huge population of people from foreign countries living in Japan mm-hmm. I can tell you from my own experience living there I mean people would come up to me they'd want to take pictures with me they'd touch my hair they'd tell me how small my face was you know I was a curiosity, you know, people didn't see people like me that much, (laughs) even in a megalopolis like Tokyo. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, so I mentioned that only because, you know, we do have a foreign actor in this movie, Kathy Horan. Mm -hmm. She was in a few of these Japanese movies. Her her family happened to go to Japan as part of the military. And that's how she she's an American. uh, And then, you know, I think her father was stationed at some base. And so that's how they ended up going there. And while she was there, she had a little bit of a modeling career and acted in a few of these movies. And so that's how she ended up in this. But you can see, right, there's definitely an exoticism around her. She's clearly not part of the in group, you know, when they're looking for someone to show off the plane of course that she's one of the I, first candidates yeah i i well yeah that that yeah that line of just like she's a foreigner so yeah. less questions later or something to that and nature. also someone who maybe doesn't act like a japanese person right like she goes and uses up all the water or whatever that mm-hmm. like you know japanese are all mortified by because they wouldn't have done the same thing or whatever but anyway right it's uh, it's actually interesting to un to see the inverse of whenever we have uh an international actor uh, uh, in a film that just only speaks their language and they're used either for, unfortunately, comedic effect or if they're just literally, we find ourselves in a situation where the character needs to have a, a language barrier and like an, an, an important character off to the side of that is somebody who only speaks their native language. And yeah. so I, I, in, I found it interesting to see the inverse and see Japanese subtitles yeah. underneath her going, I yeah. hate war, I hate war. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was very, it was, it was a, it was a weird like shift and like, oh, 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 oh everybody yes. does this. Yes. <laughs> Think about it, Zach. In yeah. other countries, we're the foreigners. <laughs> I know. Oh God. Imagine America is not the center of the universe. Jesus. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked and appalled. Well, not that shocked. Um, so I just wanted to relate. Yeah. The, the history to kind of where she fits in and how she's very different and she's definitely considered different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. So what, what, what is happening at this time in Japan? What is, right. what is going well, on? Yes, I'll get into that in just a second. There's one more thing I wanted to bring up just because when the hijacker comes and tries to hijack the plane, he wants to go to Okinawa. So I just wanted to give a quick mention of Okinawa. Uh, 
you know, in this plane, it's it stands in for Cuba, right? That's where all the American hijack planes, people tell them, take them to Cuba. <laughs> this guy wants to go to Okinawa. Yeah. Okinawa is part of the Ryukyu Islands, which are a little bit further south of the main Japanese islands. Um, most people in America are probably familiar with it because of World War II. There was a huge battle there during World War II. Um, but what I wanted to clarify was just that Okinawa itself is a slightly different culture, language than mainland Japan. So it is a colony of Japan. The people, the native people there would consider themselves colonized by Japan. Mm -hmm. And Japan has gradually moved its own people in and kind of tried to kind of Japanize it in a way that, of course, the local people there don't like. The other thing to call out about Okinawa is that, you know, we mentioned last time that the uh, Americans left Japan in 1952. Americans did not leave Okinawa, the occupation of Okinawa, until 1972. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, last year there were a bunch of 50th anniversary celebrations of that. So Americans kind of colonized Okinawa for a longer period of time um, than they did uh, Japan. So, okay, let's talk about history. So what, what are the things going on? So first of all, I thought what was interesting about this film, normally when we talk about historical context, we're just talking about what's happening in Japan, right? So we're talking right. about the war and the nuclear bomb and things that are happening. You know, we talked about Taisho and the emperor who was sickly and, you know, didn't really appear in public and all that kind of stuff, which is Japanese history. Um, I think this is the first movie we're watching where really world history has a lot of impact on this film. It's not just about, uh, Japanese history, it's a much more international looking film. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, you know, in the 1960s, it was obviously a time of great political unrest. And we talked about 1968, right? There were a lot of student protests uh, in France. If you watch, um, what's that uh, Wes Anderson film, uh, French Dispatch, there's a whole section in there about yeah. uh, the 60s, 68 uh, kind of the student uh, uh, protests in, in France, they were happening around the world, happened in Japan as well. As I mentioned, director named Oshima has made some films about that, if you're interested in checking out more about that. Right. Um, but there's political unrest. There are assassinations. Of course, the U.S. assassination is very famous. RFK, mm -hmm. JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, lots of political assassinations. Um, there's, of course, the Vietnam War going on. And although Japanese soldiers were not conscripted to go to the Vietnam War, v uh, Japan was really a base, right, for um, U.S. operations in Vietnam. So, you know, taking supplies through, of course, soldiers coming in and out. And so Japanese were very much aware of the war happening and they were affected by the war happening. Um, and so, you know, the kind of scenes that we see of the kind of war carnage from Vietnam that are shown in this film, um, I'm guessing, you know, the Vietnam War was probably reported in the news, right? It was mm -hmm. definitely something that was important to people in Japan, like I said, because Japan was kind of used like a base uh, by the U.S. military at this time. Yeah. Um, we have the rise of hijackings, right? Of course, we hear about these golden age of flying stories where you just walk into the airport and roll up to the plane and just get on, right? And it wasn't until these hijackings happened in the 60s that metal detectors got installed. Um, so this is another thing that's really starting to happen during this uh, decade. We have, you know, Eisenhower, of course, talked about the rise of the military industrial complex in the 50s. And that becomes much more of an issue throughout the 60s. And especially as we talked about with an active war happening and then how this kind of rise of that military industrial complex leads to the corruption of politicians by these military contractors, which is exactly what we're seeing in this film. Mm -hmm. And then as we talked about, it's the end of the studio system it's the beginning of the modern era and then we talked about in terms of like techniques and such um 
the new wave, the entrance of the new wave, I think was a big thing. In fact, Japanese have their own word for it. They called it the nouvelle vague mm-hmm. uh, is their name for um, uh, new wave. And so that was kind of uh, happening. And we see some of those techniques in right. this film. So those are some of the things happening. And Japan itself, as we talked about with Mothra, we're really starting to hit the, the time when Japan's really taking off as an economic power, as a country that's a part of the rest of the world, uh, modernity continuing. Um, so that's kind of what's happening. You know, rapid kind of uh, consumer culture, increase mm-hmm. in consumer culture, consumption, uh, everyone wanting to buy TV sets and cars and, you know, yeah. all this kind of stuff happening the, at but, this time. So, you know, it's a, it's a off to the side thing, but you can, you can get a sense of where it goes 20 years after this point or like even 10 years. Like mm-hmm. uh, this is just an aside. If you've got Disney Plus, watch the Imagineering story by uh, Leslie Iwerks. That documentary has a section that's rather large about the making of uh, Tokyo Disneyland and the, the, the way they contextualize it, which actually in, in a weird way helped me understand where we're going in this series a little bit from Mm -hmm. the perspective of there's a lot of imported culture. And like the reason that Tokyo would want a Disneyland is because there is a huge chunk of time during the occupation where only so many kind of films are allowed. And one of those main import products were Disney films. So if like, if you've ever wondered like what was like translating across cultures at a certain point, Disney films were doing that. And arguably horror, uh, horror and specifically like cheaper horror films certainly might've had that same kind of cachet because this is a studio that is not known for this kind of product. And yet they take a chance on it because they need money. <laughs> um, so yeah. what's what's assured to bring in the dough if not like uh, this is a genre that is specifically uh, brought about by every studio when income boost is usually needed. <laughs> yes. Um, and, yes. And that and and production costs are low, right? Horror mm-hmm. is always a winner for studios because it's cheap to make and you can have really big hits with it. That's right? that's why Saw films exist and that's why I'm getting Saw X later this year. Hey, <laughs> I, I, First Saw is a great movie. I, won't, I, am, I don't I, want to get too much of a diversion here, but the first one is actually really good. I love, oh, I love the first one. I'm actually mm-hmm. a fan of that series, not strictly because of the horror content. Mm-hmm. I am immersed in the, the craziness of the soap opera storytelling that they've done in the series. <laughs> and I keep, I keep going because I'm like, how are they going to write themselves out of the hole they established? Um, that's why you love Halloween so much. <laughs> well, that's that's another. Halloween is a different thing. Halloween is a choose your own adventure path. Each year I'm going down a different rabbit hole. Um, there's, there's, there's the correct timeline. There's the alternative correct timeline. And then there's Jamie Lloyd. It's not a dig go. against Jamie Lloyd. It's just not my favorite of the timelines. Anyways, Anywho, let's. We don't to want to get distracted because we can no. talk about those forever. But yes, so yes, you're absolutely right. Foreign influence, a, a, a desire for foreign culture, foreign styles, foreign fashion. Um, that's all happening pretty much since the war ended, and obviously with the American occupation, there was a big injection yes. of foreign content, and so that just continued um, throughout. And I think what's been interesting in Japan is. Uh, I know, you know, our politicians here will always rail about the fact that, oh, you know, foreign influences are going to ruin us and we're going to lose our Americanness or whatever, which is really just racism. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Japan, they love foreign culture. They travel to foreign countries. They consume foreign culture, but they still have a very strong internal culture as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not that one has replaced the other. They live together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 
I I appreciate how this works in cycles. Will makes something like a King Kong. It then turns around and becomes a Gojira. And then mm-hmm. in turn, we make our own giant monster yeah. movies. Like right. th- there's a cyclical, like, or like there's a reciprocal nature that cinema has that not every piece of media or imported product does. And yeah. this is, it's interesting to see how we go around a merry-go-round of influence. Like one of the reasons we're going to be going into ghosts next time is what has been, what was, what, what was one of the most influential periods of the two thousands when it came to horror, it was Japanese remakes of ghost, Japanese ghost stories. And so that, that, that reciprocal nature is eternally fascinating. And as we step back in here, like horror is not the only reciprocal genre that we've gotten from other influences, arguably, the studio that we're talking about and one of its more notable filmmakers um, yeah. did have an influence for American filmmakers down the line. Yes. And yes. Shochiku, I kind of found their story um, as, as, as cut to the point as it was, it was interesting to learn that this is one of the earliest founded companies, but it's, yep. it's the second oldest studio. Right. Um, yeah. I almost think of Shochiku a little bit like MGM, right? Mm-hmm. They had a lot of big stars, a lot of big name directors. They didn't do as much of the popular fare like a Gojira as some of the other studios did, at least in their heyday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of, it is, it's a very much an older, one of the older studios that's been around and had kind of a, yeah, a, a high, higher budget, higher kind of types of films it's initially it's 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 uh, you bring up mgm mgm had a sheen um mgm had prestige even if a mgm movie didn't work it had prestige that's that that which is inexplicable considering the guy who led it is the less least prestigious human being ever (laughs) um uh and so i learning about how it got formed, it's interesting because similar to MGM, it doesn't start off as MGM or anything like that. It starts off as its own dedicated mm-hmm. company then then gets kind of reformed. Um, yep. all, but the, we're not dealing with a merger here per se, but we're we're talking about like refocus and reshifting. Uh, Shochiku is formed as a Kabuki theater company in 1895. Um, and it's founded by Takajiro Otani, and Matsujiro Shiari, I think I pronounced Shirai. Um, and they had, they moved from Kabuki to other styles of theater, but eventually in 1920, they start going into film. So they, they kind of re- reorganize their priorities and become Shochiku, a film company, which ends up becoming the second oldest in the industry out in Japan. They move away from what is selling the Jedi Geki mode of film and draw closer to Hollywood standards. So as you mentioned, you know, there's not, they're not making special effects films. One, because that's not the era we're in yet. They're not even making samurai films. They're making melodramas. Uh, they are, they abandon certain principles like female impersonators. And then they start embracing things like the star system, which MGM relied on they were not a director's studio they were a star studio uh Mm -hmm. additionally they start building sound stages they had a main studio built in kamata and then it was temporarily relocated to kyoto because the great kanto earthquake strikes again Mm -hmm. (laughs) the whole yeah so the whole film industry started in the kind of osaka kyoto side of 
of Japan, which is called Kansai. It's the western part of the main kind of Japanese island. And then, yes, uh, everything moved to Tokyo eventually. Um, mm -hmm. But it started out on the kind of Kansai side. Yeah. No. And then following that earthquake, mm -hmm. sh sh Shochiku uh, would more, as I, as I said, it would focus more around dramas mm -hmm. that ranged in the middle to lower class families and societies within Japan. So it's mm -hmm. very much... I mean, even MGM was even known for a lot of great dramas. Yep. It wasn't just a yep. musical studio by any stretch. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And this had the ability to prop up and cultivate directors like Otsu, uh, mm -hmm. Narushe, and Shimizu. Uh, mm -hmm. Honing their craft there, they become the masters of cinema that a lot of mm -hmm. people will refer to with Japanese cinema, especially in the Criterion mm -hmm. fandom zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, not the phantom zone, the fandom zone. It's even worse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, now... Uh, this is a little bit of a piece from Jasper Sharp's Historical Dictionary of Japanese Cinema. Filming became increasingly difficult at the Kamata Studios during the 1930s, with the rapid industrialization of the surrounding areas, such as the construction of munitions factories and metal foundries, and Shochiku decided to close the studio and relocate to Afuna uh, near Kamakura in 1936. The, the next year, Shochiku Kinema was merged with its parent company, Shochiku Entertainment, and adopted the new name Shochiku Corporation. So I, 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 I was wrong. It, there is a merger, similar to how MGM started with the Lowe's Corporation, Metro Pictures, and Goldwyn, or uh, yeah, and Goldwyn Productions. So it becomes its own form of an MGM. During World War II, though, they engage in what everybody engaged in, which is propaganda. Yep. <laughs> uh, and after the war, Shiro Kidu, um, uh, uh, or during the war, Shiro Kidu, the president of Shochiku at that time, helped create the Dai Nippon Iga Kyokai, or the Greater Japan Film Association. Uh, an it was an effort to industry to uh, amid the industry to coordinate the film factories in tandem with the Japanese government policy. So what do you think happens after the war, Rashmi? Are there some war crimes trials? Oh, yeah, yeah, there are. There are. Kido and Otani are arrested and charged with war crimes. They are ultimately let go because the list of war criminals is too fucking long. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just like, no, 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 no. This is a film company. They're, they're not... This is not the emperor of Japan. This is, this, is a, this is a film studio. Yeah, I mean, not that, you know... I, not that I want to defend war criminals, but, you know, the studios were not really given much of a choice about what they could film during this time. And and even folks like Kurosawa and Mizoguchi and everybody have kind of disowned all the movies they made at this time. Because mm -hmm. everybody's sort of like, you know. And America has that same juxtaposition point where the government was very much very active in the film industry. I think they gave them more freedom. Than, yeah. than you would get in other countries, but they were not without their influence by any stretch of the imagination. Um, now, okay, so they're let go. They're like, whew, dodge that bullet. Um, <laughs> and they resume their little course of melodrama. But as the 60s emerge, Shochiku's style is getting criticism. They're calling it old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's when they start trying to develop the new wave out there, and that proves to be financially disappointing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so... It's it can be inferred that 
apart from the Torah song comedy series, which looking down <laughs> that rabbit hole, I was very yeah. fascinated. I'm like, I yeah, want- they're fun. They're fun. He's like a sales salesman and he just travels around the country. And I, yeah, it's I, I love this idea. Japanese lighthearted, ta- lighthearted uh, comedic fare. A Japanese yeah. Tati, maybe. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Not quite, no. but yeah, but he's funny. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to have to look more into him, but yeah. you've got to keep up with some form of the times. And what, as we talked about, what's, What's easy to make and cheap to produce? A horror movie. Yeah. So they yeah. do have a period of horror cinema about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But I, I, we don't want to slide by what Shochiku is known for. And Rashmi, you have a little bit more about one of its more famous, famous directors and, yeah. uh, and why, why this was such a diversion to switch to horror. Like, talk about yes. Ozu a little bit for a second. Yes. Yes, so Yasujiro Ozu is one of the biggest, most famous, most prestigious Japanese directors of the classic period. We will not be covering him in this series because he didn't make any horror films. And so I thought, since we're talking about Shochiku this time, I thought this was just a quick little moment to just acknowledge him, introduce folks to him. And if you're interested, obviously, he's one of the best filmmakers that's ever lived. Go check out his films, even though they're not horror and we won't be covering them here. They're mm-hmm. good films. Yeah. Um, so Ozu, uh, his career really parallels the studio era. He began as a director of silent films and shorts in the in the early days of cinema Mm -hmm. and he died in 62 uh his last uh, 62 or 63 and his last film came out around that time and it was obviously a sound film with color so he's kind of spanned that whole era um in in terms of a personal life he (laughs) it's kind of cute he lived with his mother his whole life uh uh, Mm. and she died i think in 61 so you know a year or two before he passed away um and there are you know rumors that he was gay um, you know, he was never really out about it, but, you know, um, I do want to mention quickly, there's another director we're not covering called Keisuke Kinoshita. I did try to shove a Kinoshita film into this series, but it just didn't have enough horror to be applicable. But he's also a great director. Go seek him out. Kinoshita was an out gay director. Now he was out. He wasn't out like John Waters out, right? He was, more, <laughs> uh, he was out like, like Mitchell Lyson out right? oh. in, that, in that he had partners. People who knew him knew he was gay, but, you know, he's not showing up to like a film premiere with a man on his arm. Right. So he's not publicly out in that the whole world knows about it. Right. His friends and family knew about it. Or like a James Whale. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, exactly. So Kinoshita knew Kinoshita was more like out gay, but like I said, but not John Waters out. Um, But Ozu was if he was gay, more closeted there kind of rumors about he was kicked out of some school or something like that in high school because he wrote a kind of flattering letter to a handsome boy in the school and whatnot. Anyway, Mm -hmm. we don't know. There's a lot of rumors. I don't want to get to it. The only reason I mention that is because most of his films are, are family melodramas and specifically several of his films are about, Ooh, a daughter needs to get married and all the drama around that. Right. And I just think it's interesting that potentially a gay man who never married made all these films. about (laughs) Right. And so there's several films like, Oh, the third sister wants to get married, but the first one isn't married yet. What do we do? Or the last sister is getting married and now the widowed father is going to be all alone. What are we going to do? You know, it's kind of a lot of those types of movies. I got like five, Um, I got five 80 sitcoms ready to, with those premises immediately. Yeah. (laughs) Although his are, of course, serious, right? Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. they're um so oh, So um, no Bob Saget is what you're telling no me. No Bob Saget is involved. <laughs> um the movies have a lot of seasonal names like late spring 
in early autumn. And so I always get them mixed up because I'm like, which one is which one? But they um, they sound they, they sort of sound like what people who don't like art films think art films are titled. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yes. Very impressionistic. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, he, he was a very exacting man. He wanted things a certain way. He's very famous, like some of the Western directors we know of making people do like 35 takes of something just because he wanted it just the right way. Um, and therefore, he tended to collaborate with a lot of the same people. In particular, I want to call one out. The, the actress that he co collaborated with quite a bit was named Setsuko Hara. Mm -hmm. um, beautiful woman. She always played the kind of filial piety girl, right? The good daughter. She plays a good daughter a lot for him. And she was also interesting because she was in a lot of the films at this time, like in the 40s and 50s, and then she kind of disappeared. And I actually think that Satoshi Kon's uh, Millennium Actress is based on Setsuko Hara, mm -hmm. uh, kind of her life story, because she just kind of disappeared at a point. Um, anyway, um, Ozu's probably his most famous film is Tokyo Story. It was at the top of the sight and sound list at one, in one of its incarnations um, and it's all about kind of an older couple coming from their rural home to Tokyo to visit with their children and when they get to Tokyo it's pretty clear that they're kind of just a bother to their children their children all have their own lives they don't want to deal with taking care of their parents they kind of ignore them the only one who even gives them the time of day is Setsuko Hara who plays a daughter-in-law she's she was married to this couple's son but the son died in the war but she's still kind and generous to them um, and it's kind of other than the kind of melodrama, I think the reason Tokyo Story has so much acclaim is because of, you know, it's talking about larger societal issues, right? About how Japanese society is changing, modernity. There are always these shots of trains going back and forth in this film because it's all about, you know, rural becoming urban, mm -hmm. ancient becoming modern. Um, that's kind of those are the themes of the story, the generation gap. Right. Right. Um, and, and there is a big generation gap. Uh, I frequently talked about of kind of the kind of the generation that fought the war and the generation that came right after that did not see eye to eye on a lot of things. Um, and so that's kind of what that film is about. Um, and he is uh, also known for, I think, what Westerners call the tatami cam. So uh, Japanese homes, not that everybody in Japan lives in a Japanese style home. There are many Western style homes as well. And some homes combine both, which I think is really cool. But in a traditional Japanese home, you're going to have tatami is at its core. Tatami is that floor, the flooring that's kind of like a grass mat kind of look yeah to it. yeah um and in fact tatami has a standard size and so when you go apartment shopping in japan instead of being told something certain certain square feet or square meters you're told it's like a six mat room or 12 mat room or mm. whatever that's how they measure uh kind of real estate <laughs> um and so people uh and and normally in a japanese home you wouldn't have a lot of these huge pieces of furniture that like a big you know big uh lazy boy recliner or whatever right a lot of you know, i'm out <laughs> Yeah, I know. Sorry, Zach. Uh, it's, you know, people are, it's a more densely populated country. And so rooms often have multiple functions. So mm -hmm. at night you take the futon out of the, out of the cabinet and then you put it down and you sleep and in the morning you put that away and you bring in your table and that becomes then the place where you're eating and living during the day. And, uh, you know, so furniture is often, you know, people are often sitting on the ground. Um, mm, and yeah. so like your dining table and everything is not built at the height it's built in the U S it's a smaller height, a lower height where you could actually sit on the ground and then have the table. Um, and so because of that, his camera is often placed at this, at this lower level, right. Where we're looking at people who are sitting on the ground on a tatami mat. And so that's kind of a signature move for him. And 
he, you know, he doesn't tend to move the camera around too much. Like Mizoguchi, when we get to Mizoguchi, Mizoguchi loved a crane. He mm -hmm. loved moving up and down and around. And he's very yep. famous for his crane usage. Um, so Ozu didn't do that. Ozu kind of had more of like, this is the view we have. He would do kind of axial cuts, right? So we're going to have a close up. Now we're going to have something that's going to show the, you know, depth of field as well in the background. And oftentimes he chooses to do that because there's something in the back he wants to show that relates to what the people here in the foreground are talking about. Right. Like that's kind of his style. So that's kind of something that he's also famous for. And then finally, what I'll say, he's very influential. You know, whereas I think the kind of boomer generation of action directors like Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola, they gravitated maybe a little bit more towards Kurosawa, um, the kind of criterion kids, right, of the boomer generation. So Claire Denis, Jim Jarmusch, Wim Wenders, folks like that, mm -hmm. uh, the artsy, the artsy fartsy crowd. Um, they love Ozu. In fact, Claire Denis, her film 37 Shots of Rum is a remake of an Ozu film. And guess what? It's all about a girl getting married and how that impacts her father. <laughs> um, so my, you know, I haven't seen all of Ozu, but, you know, Tokyo Story is obviously one of the most famous. Another one that I really like is his last film, An Automatic afternoon and that also features Setsuko Hara and it's mm -hmm. it's a beautiful I mean these are beautiful movies I kind of joke about them a little bit when I call them melodramas but they're beautiful films beautifully made he definitely has a signature style that people in the west have also really uh, enjoyed and looked up to so that's that's Ozu seek him out we're not covering him but that doesn't mean you can't watch his films and, and if you do have the Criterion channel several of them are on there it's it but it's still important to bring it up because it has to do specifically with Shochiku and what what they're losing in 1963 when he passes away you yeah. were you're losing a, a good card up your sleeve and yeah. they're in a crux point where they are seen as irrelevant outdated and yeah. This is when we get this, uh, this 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 four this four point attack of horror films and sci fi, uh, tekasatsu films. You have like films that are on this collection that, and one of them we will definitely be talking about. Like the Eclipse series has the X from Outer Space, uh, the mm -hmm. Living Skeleton, and Genocide mm -hmm. on top of Goki Body Snatcher mm -hmm. from Hell, uh, mm -hmm. and they are decidedly. They're decidedly a big 180 from what Chochiku is known for. And Goki in particular, uh, I get the feeling that it, it, I get the feeling that it found a way to be subversive in a way that I have not yeah. seen up to this point. Yeah, the, I agree. I mean, yeah. If we, uh I don't know. Do you want to talk about your the musician first, or do we want to move? On I to I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, cat. What what I found interesting is that in the Eclipse series, there's not a lot of notes, but there is one uh, insert written by David Callet, and he talks a little bit about the director. Uh, and Wait. I just wanted to kind of touch quick base on that. The director of our film today, Hajime Sato or Sato. Um, Sato. 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 Yeah, Sato. Mm -hmm. um, Sato had a degree in economics before changing careers uh, and creating a lot of cult movies for Japan. For Japan, He made Golden Bat, Terror from Beneath the Sea. He started off at Toei Studios in 1952 mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. cop and crime movies, so maybe mm -hmm. a little bit back to our uh, Suzuki uh, thing mm -hmm. on the on the main feed. Um, mm -hmm. And he was still employed uh, uh, in by Toei's television division while making Goki for Shochiku. So he's able to work a couple of different studios, not unlike the composer of this film, who we'll touch on in a second. But Sato 
uh, would have uh, he worked on in various capacities later on on in fantasy and superhero shows and movies such as Captain Ultra, Cleopatra Queen of Sex, <laughs> and mm. Hayao Miyazaki's Future Boy Conan. He worked mm. all up into the 1980s, and he finally passes away in 1995. We also have another very prolific figure uh, when it comes to Koki. Goki, and it is the composer of the film Shunsuke Kikuchi. Now, he graduates from the Omari Prefectural Hirosaki Technical High School, specializing in mechanics. Uh, He then attends the Neon University College of Art in the music department. Following his graduation, he makes his debut in 1961 with The Eighth Enemy. Throughout the 60s, he is scoring special effects films and television for studios like Toei, Daei, and Shochiku. He he is all over the place. You go to his IMDb page, he has no less than a billion projects going on throughout the 60s. Uh, he is working from studio to studio to studio. In the same year as Goki, he's, it's, which seems to be his lesser year, uh, <laughs> he scores The Snake Woman's Curse for Toei, Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch for Daie, Genocide, and Otoku no Shobu, Byako no Tetsu for Taie, and Wicked Priest for Taie. So he's literally all over the place between Shochiku, Daie, and Toei. Like, I, I've never seen a composer able to pull off that kind of gumption unless you're in a studio mentality. And what's weird is, is that this is near the end of yeah. the studio mentality, like composers like Max Steiner or yep. um, or uh, 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 Franz Waxman, they're working everything in the department, everything. And it's similar here. He, this composer Kikuchi would end up being very influential for two key points to our modern understanding of pop culture. One is he composes a piece called Urami, Urami Bushi uh, for the female convict scorpion series. Yeah, that is late. That's a, yeah, it's great. It's an exploitation movie. It's it's really good. If you like Kill Bill, it's basically Kill Bill. Which it's, and again yeah. at, to bring up Kill Bill. Yeah, he that is used as a music cue, and I believe yeah. at the very least the end credits of um, Kill Bill Volume Two. Um, yeah. although I think they, no, they don't use it at the end of volume one. No, it's at the end of Kill Bill volume two. Um, but also, uh, every anime film, uh, nerd or anime TV series nerd needs to stand up and salute him for creating music for the one and only Dragon Ball and its subsequent series that have seemingly gone on to the ends of the earth. Uh, <laughs> he is one of these people who still has credits being applied to IMDb because amazing. Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z have never fucking ended. <laughs> yeah. Which is amazing. Which great. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm, what I'm, an influential career for, for him that, you know, we don't know him very well. We don't really know him by name, but Kikuchi has just created so much. For he, us. he found, right. he found all seven Dragon Balls and said, I want to go on forever. How do I do that? Uh-huh. And the dragon said, Oh, don't you worry. Uh, so, you go. so now- immortality through creation, right? So, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about just some influences, commonalities. Remember the point of this podcast is to mm-hmm. kind of tie what's happening here to what happens in the future. And, right. you know, I think 
I definitely see some links to Giallo, you know, kind of the psychedelic colors. You know, if you think about like Suspiria or some of Fulci's films, there's definitely and that kind of the the kind of very visceral blobs and some of those <laughs> things, very Fulci-esque, right? So as a fan of Giallo, I definitely see a, a cousin to Giallo here mm-hmm. in that sense. In I that, can agree. In some of those stylistic sense. There's definitely that 60s mod campiness that once again we see in other the of these types of films that are happening around the world at this time i really found those red still photo flashbacks very arresting the flashbacks particularly to the violence of the vietnam war um and i think the way they're inserted obviously that that's kind of new wave sensibility right it's not continuity it's definitely breaking whatever drama was happening on this particular screen to to insert those shots um the disaster archetypes i thought were great and for me connects this films to a almost every disaster film that's ever happened, right? From like the five who returned to Poseidon Adventure or whatever, right? You have those archetypes of the different people who are caught together in some disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the kind of morality and who survives, right? I think horror films and sci-fi films always have this, right? We talk about the final girl in a slasher film, but it's very similar in these other films, right? That like the, the you know, if someone's being an asshole, they're going to die, right? Like that's just the morality of how it works. And so usually the people who survive at the ends are the ones who usually have done the most to help others. So we see that here, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, maybe we'll talk about the end more in detail at the end, but that very apocalyptic end, mm-hmm. I think, is a very modern sensibility and not something you see a lot of until you get more films in the 70s, 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. where you're starting to see more of that. Um, but, you know, connections to, you know, I definitely got some Plan 9 energy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blob, of course, because we have a blob in here. But looking forward, you know, I would say two connections for me were definitely Life Force, right? Yeah. Uh, less less cocaine than Life Force, but Life Force, they're, they're alien vampires. We got alien vampires here. Mm-hmm. Got alien vampires yeah. in Life Force. And Life Force also has a if, very if, apocalyptic end. If anybody here hasn't watched Toby Hooper's Life Force, I urge you immediately to go watch that movie. I you, mean, Patrick uh, Stewart, come y- on. Yeah, and he's actually, and the, he only gets one light uh, exposed on him instead of four lights. Uh, <laughs> but that, but that movie's just a, 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 it is cocaine on wheels. But it's it is, co- it's absolutely, yeah, it's but, absolutely a movie made by Coke. But it has a lot of that campiness. There are a mm-hmm. lot of similarities in that. I mean, they're different movies, of course. Once again, I'm not meaning to say they're the same movie, but it definitely ties there. Uh, the other one I would say is the thing. And that there's this kind of sense that this alien entity is coming in and possessing uh, yeah, something and making it destroy others. It's, right? it's it's less of an Agatha Christie and a little bit more of like, all right, we know that one person is out here until like a certain section that we'll get to in the plot. But yeah, yeah. no, it is very much kind of like it, it, it is honing in on that Bill Campbell uh, story and telling aesthetic. Yeah. Yep. So lots of connections, lots of connections to what came after it. I mm-hmm. think once again, not saying these were directly like, you know, Dario Argento watched this movie and made this That is not at all what I'm saying, but there's just that kind of, you know, cultural connection that somehow happens in the ether. And we we have a collective unconscious theme yeah, coming exactly. through these, this series where yeah. it's not, it's influenced because it's happening all around the world. It's not because exactly. of one, a one-to-one connection. Um, exactly. So on that note, why don't we go ahead and jump into the plot of this film? Uh, this, this film has a lot going on in it. 
what? They're so, and you just get hit with it right at the beginning, right? Blood red sky and then a bloody bird strike. Like, you know you're in for a ride with this film. And you know what my first thought was? I was like, Uma Thurman's on that plane. (laughs) That shot, it's so like, it is a testament a little bit to Quentin Tarantino to be like, all right, I'm going to homage everything, including select shots from just one film out of nowhere. All the time. So this is why I think, you know, seeing these Japanese films should be interesting for you, Zach, because like when I see Japanese movies or when I see Tarantino movies, I'm like, oh, that's from this film and that's from this film. And he cuts shots exactly. Yeah. Not only that, but like I got the feeling of like, I do not think and he's because he's been explicit about a lot of his influences for Hateful Eight. But there is a Hateful Eight element of this of like, we don't want to step outside this plane, same Mm -hmm. as we don't want to step outside of the of Minnie's haberdashery whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So like it's it's more just like I think it's just like it sticks in your brain. It becomes part of a of a whole subgenre. Maybe you're more predilected towards the thing and influence, but Goki has to be in there somewhere because yeah. the the whole notion of them being stuck inside this plane for most of yes. the film. Yes. Uh, it's such a great confinement. We'll get more into it's it, but wonderful. yeah, we, yeah. we open, yeah. we open up in the plane and yeah. We are introduced to a plethora of characters here. There's a lot yeah, of lots going of characters, on. and they're all weird. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a single like even the kind of socially respectable professions of psychiatrist or or scientist. They're all weird too. Oh, psychi- I love psychiatrist because he's, he's so just creepy. like I get a kick out of watching people he's unwind, so and I'm like, go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this is yeah, this is so blood red sky, and then we have kind of uh oh. There's a bomb threat. There's right? a bomb threat. Everybody's yeah. searched. You've got Senator Mono being searched. Um, yeah. You have uh, Tokiyasu, a weapons deve- mm-hmm. a, a weapons manufacturer, being searched. Mm-hmm. You have his wife, mm-hmm. N- Noriko, being searched. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. an American passenger named Mrs. Neal uh, yeah. <laughs> being searched. Uh, and you have... He's he's listed in the uh, in on like Wikipedia as the young passenger, but I called him an artist because I saw a sketch in his book or like out, out of his bag. So I'm like, he's maybe he's a young artist, like a rebellious mm-hmm. young artist. Um, mm-hmm. And he's uh, he 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 proves to be interesting right after what happens. But we right. also have a very uh, we have a professor of of mm-hmm. biology, Professor Sagai. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And we have our two, we have two pilots. One of them is unnamed, and it doesn't matter. He doesn't make it very far. No, no, no. Guys. He's not yeah. going to make it after all, so he doesn't yeah. get to throw his hat up in a sitcom as <laughs> fashion. But we have Sukisaka uh, um, and the flight attendant Kazumi, uh, yeah. and uh, they are when they're searching the plane. Um, the Kazumi finds a bag in steerage. Oh, and by the way, you know what I was thinking? I was like. How how is just checking cabbage bag cabin baggage gonna do it? Like was I mean there must have been check baggage too. So anyway, they, but that's just you know you gotta put check your questions in at the door. Well, you know? I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is kind of like a like oh this just happens to be in steerage. Okay, right. yeah, I know it happens <laughs> yes, to be right- a mysterious lost suitcase and a weirdo in a white suit saying that, oh, he doesn't have any luggage. And by <laughs> the way, they're in close proximity to each other, the bag and the white suited gentleman, and and so oh, it's I love just, the the white. I mean, so stylish. I, I just love the white suit guy. I, I, I messaged you. It's him, 
Groucho Marx in A Night in yeah. Casablanca, yeah. Rick in regular Casablanca. That's, That's it. Yeah. They're the only people oh, who can pull stylish. this off. Uh, and then I added William Hurt and Body Heat. But yeah. yes, white yes. suits. <laughs> white suits are, are hard to pull off, and he does it, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anybody who yeah. thinks they can pull off a white suit, you're lying to yourself. It's only exactly. these four gentlemen. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we're so searching for bombs. Oh, and by the way. I think it's a psychiatrist that has this wonderful line around do birds commit suicide? <laughs> <laughs> it's a Philip K. Dick esque question. <laughs> They're constantly, right? There's several of these kind of bloody bird strikes that are happening. I like the idea of Philip K. Dick program. having that title in mind from watching this film and them going, like, guys, that, that's not going to work. How about do, uh, do, do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, I guess that's better. <laughs> but we. We have the bag. We find the bag that we're looking for. Yep. Yep. Odd suitcase. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you can just you can just open it with a with a screwdriver, which is fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, No. Everything. Yes. Yes. So the first, (laughs) so there are lots of things in here, right? There's like a rifle and all these other things, and then yes, there happens to be a bottle of acid, which he plopply drops, (laughs) and they find a rifle, and there's an immediate thought. That it's political assassination because right, the British because ambassador a, exactly. has just, just been, been murdered. Yep. <laughs> and um, and that's actually, you know, like it's funny, like prior to that, Senator Mono and Tokiyasu are having that conversation about a world on decline, and that ambassador well, was mm-hmm. trying to gr- create a more peaceful world. And Mano goes, like, mm-hmm. shut the fuck up. We all know mm-hmm. that you'd lose your business if we lost war. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, like, the right off the bat, we're not even mesh, meshing words. We're alluding right away to JFK and RFK, um, yes. amidst other potential. Many. I yeah, mean, this was a yeah. decade of assassinations. The U.S. We know ours, but they're they're happening worldwide. Yeah. I mean, there's you know Congo, right? Like you can hear about some of the assassinations that happened there. And anyway, it's, they're it's, everywhere. It's weird. Like everywhere. there's every every decade has their fever. That was weird that this was assassination fever in and hijacking. There are lots of hijackings. Yeah, oh yeah, and hijacking. Getting of the hijacking. I always era. look at that yeah. as more of a '70s thing, but I guess that's you're right. where it yeah. became mainstream. But that's you know this is where they were like, oh, maybe we should put some metal direct- detectors oh, in. Oh, oh this is this is hijacking yeah. before it became big. It's yes. the Radiohead yep. of of activities yes. in the '60s. Exactly. Yeah, okay, it's the beginning. I got. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, they find the rifle, but then, mm-hmm. but but the upper hand is gotten by the assassin who goes like, "I've got another gun!" Ha ha! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't search my leg, did you? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, this turns into a standoff. But as said before, he wants to go to Okinawa. He wants to go to hilarious. he wants to go to Okinawa. Yeah. But some yeah. things have been happening around this plane already. Yes. One of which is birds are running into it, uh, yep. Hitchcock style. But Yep. Unlike Hitchcock, I, I love Hitchcock, but he did not yep. have the balls to have yep. those birds explode upon impact. Yeah, the blood, <laughs> the blood is just something. It's almost—it's really—it's just visually arresting. And even though I think the same shot is used three times over, it's worth three times. It I, was a good—it's really good effect. I want to yeah. know how they did some of it, but my guess is they took a fake bird. With yeah. feather, with very loose feathers, attached yeah. a very flimsy blood balloon pack. filled with yeah. blood, and then yeah. just shoved, like just tossed just it. Onto it. The- <laughs> just threw it. At- yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly. What you, happened. you yeah. at home can make your own Goki the Body Snatcher effects yeah. with anything it found at Party City and or Hobby Lobby. Good point. Um- <laughs> Good point. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that and then we hear that radio broadcast, right? That mm-hmm. there's kind of hmm, these UFOs seem to be around. Yeah, right? we're, we're, we're UFOs radio broadcast. Did somebody? <gasps> mentioned me <laughs> hello our 
sir. Thanks for joining us. Somebody stole shit from me. <laughs> I want it back. This was my idea. I, I wrote this down as the world's most ill-fated flight because there's a hijacker, <laughs> a separate suicide bomber, and then a mechanical failure. Yeah. Now, UFO. Add to that the disillusionment of the 1960s, and you're in for the most this wacky, really the chaotic time. Yes. So, worst fight ever. Yes. It's, it's, no. <laughs> thank you, comic book guy. <laughs> so, I can't do comic so, book guy, but anyway. Worst yeah. flight ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it crashes, and we yep. we are. I love this. Uh, yep. it, like, ever since I first saw The Departed, I've always enjoyed this. Of a title sequence that doesn't happen until way into the beginning yep. of the movie. Yep. yep. <laughs> the plane crashes, then we get our title card, and it's on a red background. So, mm -hmm. once again, so much red in this movie. I love red. It's my favorite color, but you know, it generally doesn't portend good things in these situations. Oh, no. That spells doom. Yeah. It spells doom yeah. all over the place. Exactly. Um, and we, we, when we come out of our opening credits, we are on the ground. The plane has crashed. Mm -hmm. Not everybody one has pilot, survived, but... Not one pilot dead. There's a crow. The crow in the wreckage is like the first <laughs> thing you see. Then you see the pilot is dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the hijacker seems dead. Yes, he seems uh, dead, but I don't but trust we'll him. See, we'll He's know an more about that later. Yep, the flight attendant made it. The bomber survives, and then he goes out. Of course, he still has the bomb in his hand, which isn't a good look. No. <laughs> he runs outside to go bury it. It's questionable judgment, but okay. I, I um, mean, I, I, I mean, they've just been through a whole plane crash. I'm not expecting yeah. best judgment right away. What the, Fair the, the young man, the artist, literally tries to just run out the door, uh, and, like, and, and that's when we get our first action sequence with him. Like, I think we're saved. calling that's the same person. I think the person you're calling the artist is the one I'm calling the bomber. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Oh yeah. The bomber. Yes. I yeah. actually that would yeah. be more appropriate because he does end up yeah. being a bomber. But yes. he initially doesn't admit to being a bomber. Fair uh, enough. He's a he's yeah. He's a he's an alternative sixties kind of yeah counterculture guy. Oh, you yeah. mean a hippie? Boom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the the survivors are uh, Senator Mano, Takiyasu, uh, Noriko, Mrs. Neil, uh, and Professor mm -hmm. Sagai, and uh, Doctor mm -hmm. Momotake, mm -hmm. the psychiatrist, mm -hmm. the creepy mm -hmm. psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the bomber leads the leaves the plane. Sukasaka yeah. chases him down. And I love that he still has his gloves on. Yes. So just a little note, right? In Japan, anybody who drives something as a profession is always wearing white gloves. So taxi drivers wear white gloves, bus drivers wear white gloves, pilots wear white gloves, train conductors wear white gloves. Still to this day, like mm. you'll see that. Wow. Uh, I don't know about Uber drivers. I'm guessing no for the Uber drivers, but at least professional drivers are all wearing white gloves. So I think it's cool that he still has them on when he's going out and running after that bomber. Yeah. yeah. And he saves them from a, from yes. a rock slide essentially. Yes. Cause they're in this, yes. like they're in what kind of looks like a set for a Star Trek episode. If it yes. has no life on it. Uh, yes. And and in a lot of ways, in some weird ways, like the the tone and mood feels like one of those Star Trek episodes at times. Um, yep. And there is a, and that's when he the the bomber reveals. I called in the fake bomb threat. I was because, bored because the world is a boring place. Bored. Uh, and, and now imagine if that was said out loud today. <laughs> <laughs> you throw him in Sing Sing for five hundred years. <laughs> 
imagine yeah. no he's, yeah. he's definitely yeah he's definitely our countercultural representative who's just kind of like establishment sucks mm-hmm. you know yeah anyway yeah thank yeah. god he doesn't survive because i'm sure he would have lost his radicalism grown up and become a corporate sleaze anywho yeah. um back in the plane though the survivors are trying to run through a rescue plan and they really don't know what the fuck to do uh and, and at- this is where you get that kind of archetypal reactions of all the passengers, right? right? Yes. So you have the politician and the contractor are getting angry and blaming people and, you know, kind of like, I have to get out of here because there's an election and whatever, all this kind of entitlement. And then you have like the scientists, both the psychiatrist and the, and the, the, the scientists are kind of like curious, right? Mm-hmm. They want to learn more. So each of them kind of reacts to the situation based on where they're coming from. Right. And they and they and they want to stay in the plane because it's the only thing they recognize. <laughs> like right. but also they don't know they don't know where they are. And at this point though, as they're talking about like, well, the the there's gonna be rescue, uh rescue mm-hmm. a, a rescue operation at some point. So we just gotta stay mm-hmm. tight. We'll probably be out within a day. The mm-hmm. assassin mm-hmm. takes out the, or the hijacker takes out the radio and mm-hmm. holds Kazumi hostage and takes her mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. And when yep. and when they run and, and outside, before that, yeah. before that is a point where uh, Mrs. Neal has used up all the drinking water. Oh yeah, what's she doing? Washing her fucking face or yeah, something? Yeah, touching uh, like, her face uh, as any white woman would do, of course. I, I, uh, I have a <laughs> quote from John Hanna in the uh, in the Mummy: "Americans." Exactly. Uh, and so exactly. yeah, she wastes all the water, and she's a dum dum. And uh, the. Uh, but yeah, the hijacker or the assassin, whoever you want yeah. to refer to him as, he yeah. uh, he he holds Kazumi hostage, takes her out into the middle of this barren wasteland, and they come yep. upon a flying saucer. Uh, which yep. that's the so thing. this is our first close up, which right, of this glowing UFO. We sh- which we should mention. I, I I know we just we skipped over this. Is that when they crash, it's because there's a blinding light and. That's right a sort of outline of what we end up seeing as a spaceship kind mm-hmm. of in the distance in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's what this is. And mm-hmm. Suga, uh, and the, 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 uh, when they arrive at it, the assassin essentially yep. stops in his tracks and becomes calmer yep. than calm. Yep. Walks. By the way, turn yeah. on the theremin. It's theremin Ooh, time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I loved that. I loved this. Uh, Kikuchi got my heart with a theremin. I love yeah. that. I love that the theremin transcended cultures and, and it did. Uh, countries. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Every- you want to imply weird UFO stuff. Mm-hmm. Turn on your theremin. It's- yeah. So this is, yeah, I love the seat. Okay. The effects are cheap. They're clearly fake. You know, it's fake. That's okay. I don't I care. Think cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really cool because they're essentially, um, imp- it's showing you how mind control, alien mind control works by having this blue blob basically crawl over from the UFO into the brain mm-hmm. of this hijacker. I love it. I just think it's so fun. It's like, because no other movie really explains this to you. It's like, well, they're just being mind controlled by aliens. But how? I, I would go further. No film anywhere other than Japan would be this explicit with your head splitting open. I know. At this time, so no. Cool. I love it. Whatever the, whatever the <laughs> shit fit people through when, they t- when Night of the Living Dead came out, like they're eating organs, even though they're clearly fake. And I'm like, dude. Japan's got you beat. <laughs> like they're yeah. splitting. There's a lot heads more open. graphic horror at this time. We're going to see more of it as we move along. But yes, you're totally right. They show a lot more in terms of horror than a uh, American film would at this time. Yeah, Absolutely. and so the yeah. yeah the 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 alien gets hold of the, yep. the the beware of the blob. It creeps around assassins across the floor, and yeah. uh, 
<laughs> the alien blob kind of has Gumby-esque legs. I noted at one point. I like, know. I, I thought it's it was. It's got to move around. I thought it was going to be like, Pokey, what are you doing? <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, meanwhile, Sukisaka searches ko- for Kazumi amid the dark, yep. and he yep. finds the rifle, and then and Kazumi passed out. Yeah. Yes. And guess what is the first word she says when he walks up to her? What does she say? Kawaii! Kawaii! The name of our, the name of our series. They said yeah, the title so of the she's... series. Yay! Uh, hey! <laughs> <Pina>! <laughs> And I can do a pretty good Lois. Yes. Uh, yes. Peter Griffin would be very excited. I said the title of the movie. Yep, I'm telling exactly. you, this is all a bunch of kawaii. Oh, that's why they call it that. Exactly. <laughs> that's her first word because she's scared because she was there as a witness mm-hmm. to this psychedelic mind control yes. happening. And, the and uh, but she does not want to speak. So the psychiatrist mm-hmm. goes like, well, there is hypnotism. And I'm like, of right. course there is. <laughs> right. So before before we get to the hypnosis, though, a couple of other. Uh, so uh, we find out the contractor has basically pimped out his wife to the politician. Super gross. Ew. Hmm. Um, and then then manipulates him through alcohol, which we will see come to a head later. And I referred to at the beginning of our episode here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then. They're kind of digging graves outside is what I'm guessing is happening because they're definitely digging out there. There's a weird cut where I'm like, where did the fire come involved? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So (laughs) I don't know if they're burning the dead or somehow there are fires exactly lit in these barrels. And then there's. Yeah. Look, look, the guy, look, the guy, the people, the people who didn't make fifty thousand dollars max minimum are going to be burned to death. And the other ones get a proper burial. All right. Now let's just get to digging and setting fires like that. That's the only thing that I can come up with at this point. I really think it's not so much that it's inexplicable it's just that if this comes down it's to a fis- cut. i think i think you're right it's just a weird cut that, yeah and you know, we I, weren't outside the plane all of a sudden we're outside the plane and then there's a fire and you have so. to wonder anyway. if maybe that's just because that's also sur- that survives of the print there might be actually a missing section maybe. or like a yeah, missing we shot don't know. yeah that's true yeah it might be so anyway the radio still uh so the bomber has a radio that still works and mm-hmm. so what they hear is that essentially they couldn't the rescue efforts for this plane have ended essentially is the mm-hmm. news that's coming through which is which is not great news to have and it's at that point where they then decide to hypnotize the flight attendant to try to figure out what might have happened to the hijacker and so then of course the hypnosis starts the theremin returns mm-hmm. yeah uh there's blinding light she talks about blinding light there was this blob that went into his brain mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> there, there it it uh it the they they give us a little bit more detail on what happened yeah. in there and it's just the yeah. visual aesthetic of this is i got this i mentioned star trek earlier i got the sense of a star trek episode that was just allowed to crank it up to 500 and yeah. and there's an element of those special effects similar to star trek where i understand that the doors are cheap on star trek and i understand that the co- that the alien makeup is cheap i don't give a shit i really don't exactly if if the storytelling is strong enough it will surpass that's the key i think yeah you know, my I was telling a friend of mine in Japan yesterday about this movie and I and she's like, Well, if it's so obscure, like why do you like it? And I was like, Because the storytelling is great, the characterizations are really compelling and mm-hmm. good, and the way that people interact are great. And then there's some really arresting visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah, that these are the things that kind of endear this film to me. But yeah, so so that's when we learn kind of the aliens 
are using kind of the fact that people are too busy fighting against each other to fight them. And so wartime is a great time for them to invade. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And as soon as we get some of these explanations, the hijacker mysteriously comes back and obviously has this huge scar on his head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and prior to that though, we, as the, they're, as they're talking about what's going on and why they don't all believe it's an alien. The biologist is the one who's the most convinced. He literally says you cannot, you can't deny that ever since the a bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, flying saucer sightings have been increased dramatically. Our senseless Mm -hmm. wars have given extraterrestrials an inner, an irresistible opportunity to invade our planet. And Mrs. Neal freaks out about this because she does not want war. She hates war. The subtitles tell us in two different languages she hates war. (laughs) And there are literally shots of the Vietnam War and photography coming out of the Vietnam War uh, Mm -hmm. inserted in this kind of like red uh, dramatic aesthetic. It kind of reminds me sort of of like some of the shots at the end of Night of the Living Dead where they're they're like, you hear the gunshots like a... Yep. Yeah. That yeah. that is done but over a red filter. And the uh the key though is that she was on her way to collect her husband's body because her mm-hmm. husband was killed in Vietnam. Uh and I love how she explains that and me as an American She's explaining it in American in a very blunt fashion, and Sugisaka goes into a dramatic monologue <laughs> from yes. how it's subtitled into like her husband was killed in the fires of war, and I'm like, man, we sound stupid compared to other countries. <laughs> like we, yes. So I think actually before we have this flashback and the and the uh, kind of yeah the humanism, just what we need. So before that though is when the man um fall is pushed to the cross by the bomber um yes. and the uh bomber is then becomes the one that everybody hates and they leave him out of the plane because mm-hmm. they're like this guy's awful yes um and then the when the hijacker returns with this scar on his head the mrs neil is the first one to kind of go up and try to help him yes right yeah um and maybe there's a little bit of that outsider commonality they're both kind of outsiders now right so Mm -hmm. she's trying to help him and that's when we get the vietnam flashback uh the napalm discussion of napalm the fact that her husband had just died in the war kind of from a friendly fire incident and she she was on this flight because she was trying to go pick up his body yeah um and that's when we get the yes the great the kind of description of wars and whatnot and the great quote humanism just what we need right um and this and then yeah yeah go ahead i was gonna say this freaks all this freaks out the bomber (laughs) and he had he goes up to that psychiatrist and slaps him it's fucking yes. silly I, I thought that had happened before but it couldn't be my notes are off i i thought that he had gotten pushed by the bomber um flashbacks maybe there actually there might have been two sets of flashbacks i th- i think there's the two yeah. sets but anyway yeah, yeah regardless that that's important though because one of the first victims is the psychiatrist um yes. because he falls off a cliff <laughs> Yes. After this fucking scuffle with the with the yes. bomber and yes. uh, Goki goes in and we have to talk about what the what Goki does. The alien goes to you in attack mode, subdues you yep. and proceeds mm-hmm. to suck your face. <laughs> yeah. So once again, I don't. Uh, so in my notes, we're not quite there yet. OK, let me I'll I'll, I'll try to catch up here. Uh, we got a quote. I've got a bad feeling about this. The wife slaps the contractor. The politician is desperate for water. And that's when kind of the 
falling out between the contractor and the politician happens. Uh, that's um, after. No, I, I have that after. I have that down. Okay. And then yeah. we have, they're talking about bribes and bankruptcy. And then the contractor forces everyone out of the plane with the rifle. And that's when the hijacker comes in and kills him because the contractor, I believe, is the first yeah. victim. No, 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 uh, no, no, it's the psychiatrist. Like in the. Wasn't he pushed by the bomber, though? The psychiatrist is pushed down by the bomber. That's why they, they isolate the bomber. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's. You know. So long story short, yeah. Goki, when he when he goes into his attack mode, he is basically doing vampire mode. But the yes. way it's shot. Yeah, it looks like. There's lovemaking going on. Yeah, it's very sensual, especially the last kill of the Mrs. Neal. Yeah, it's yeah. Very My girlfriend yeah, yeah. walked in on me watching yes. it, and she's just like, yeah. is, what are you watching? I'm like, it's a yeah. sci-fi movie. She's like, it is? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I yeah, understand. I, think, <laughs> I feel like when he's killing like the contractor and some of the men, it's a bit more mechanical, but definitely the Mrs. Neal shot. You're kind of like, okay, everybody get out the cigarettes now. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> like, well, fantastic. <laughs> Um, uh, and so, yeah, but inside the plane, tensions get high and Senator Mono needs yeah. water. <laughs> yep. He's yep. really good at portraying exaggerated dehydration. So much overacting. I loved it. it but it kind of worked because he's such a pantomime character. Right? Yes, he's he is. really bad. There's not a single saving grace about him. He's selfish. He's arrogant. He treats everybody else poorly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're not that sad about the fact that he's suffering. No. Oh, and then Tokiyasu, it's yeah. a it's a trick that fooled me the first time I watched it. He has a canteen and he's just like, yeah. You want this water? Tell everybody what yeah. you're doing on here. Because yeah. Mono has the has makes the unfortunate mistake of telling Tokiyasu, find yeah. me water and I promise I'll consider that defense contract seriously. Yeah. And that's when Tokiyasu goes, say what? You yeah. told me like, it was I already in the bag. bribed you for that. So you meant the bribes meant nothing. Yeah, yeah. So that And this is where the thing I mentioned at the earlier in the episode where the kind of language used switches. This mm -hmm. is where it's happening. Yes. Yeah. And this is this is where Tokiyasu like starts taking a canteen of water and spilling little bits of it out until finally it's it's clear that Mono's not even going to say anything about it and so Tokiyasu basically says like your your senator is a is a crooked man and then he's going to take my money so that all my defense contracts can push through and oh yeah I've been pimping out my wife uh and then he finally gives that canteen to Mono and it was empty this whole time like he poured out the last drops already that was a sneaky move on uh, his part absolutely um mm -hmm. and then that's when. So now, of course, the contractor's been a bad person, so yes. he has to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after he forces everyone out of the plane with the rifle, mm -hmm. the hijacker sneaks in. Yep. And, and goes in for some face sucking. Woo! Yeah. Hooray! Throat. You could More say throat. you Neck. could say he was Neck. draining his life force. <laughs> That's when Toby Hooper <laughs> claps with a bunch of cocaine in his hands. By <laughs> the way, talking about sexy vampires, life force is all about sexy vampires. Well, oof, oof, yeah, yeah, don't get me, don't get missed out of the vapors. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now they hear his screams, and Sugisaka tries to get in. Uh, yeah. But when he does, they rush yeah. to find Tomiyasu, Tokiyasu dead. 
And the biologist sees that the blood has been drained from him, and he goes, we are exactly. dealing with a vampire. Yeah, <laughs> all the blood is gone. Uh, yeah. yeah. And of course, the wife is super happy. The wife's like, this is awesome. I hated this guy. He mm-hmm. pimped me out. Yeah, li- liberation has yeah. come to Nariku, but it's wow. very Not short-lived. for long. Yeah, Not for long. literally yeah. in the exact same scene, Neil and yeah. Kazumi are, are tending to each other. Meanwhile, yeah. she's in a part of the plane where Goki gets, gets her from behind closes her mouth yeah. and proceeds to do his yeah. vampire thing there's a lot of like quick well, kills within... no he doesn't so he no, so then yeah so she's taken by the hijacker to the ufo i believe right the, yes the she, no yes she is yeah, yeah. he yeah. does a little face yeah. second he gets her to the yeah. um uh to the ship and they both yeah. walk in willingly exactly mm-hmm. yeah exactly so yes. uh they go in there uh yep. out uh and and Nuriko becomes consumed by this alien and the, the visuals become very psychedelic as she's being approached. Yes, lots yeah. of shimmer. Mm-hmm. And I just love it. Once again, this is very much, this is such a 60s movie, right? This is what we're seeing. And by the way, you know, all these drugs like LSD and pot and whatever, they their consumption was also increasing in the 60s in Japan as well. Which right? so would, you get a little bit of that sense that, you know, maybe that's part of why this has made it into this film. Which I, right? which I compare to those visuals like that i don't know if you're similar to me but visuals like that will overwhelm my senses and that is the similar feeling that i had watching a page of madness when we went to back to that right. where everything is kind of like hitting you in the face and yes. this movie is not f- strictly predicated on hit you hitting, hitting you in the face but it has yeah. such abrupt sequences like this that and, i got that same sensation point, right because yeah Nothing is happening during that scene, but it's a long hold on mm-hmm. that visual. And I think it is very much to create a mood in us, in a feeling in us. Right? Yeah. From seeing that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I thought I, once again, love that shot. Uh, as fake as it looks, it's meant to look fake. It's an effect. It's meant to look weird, right? Yeah. To kind of prompt that feeling in you. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't want anybody to remake Goki with CGI no. and making it look no, realistic. I don't no. need that. No, please make it, no. make it it's goofy. To, make it it's goofy. It's not meant to be realistic. I don't want to see an actual looking head getting split open with a blob <laughs> going in. It's so much more comfortable when it's a fake head and I know it's a fake head, it's, right? It's, yeah. It's, uh, it's similar to, I like the prequel to the thing that they put out in 2011, yeah. but there is mm. a difference between when it is a CGI thing versus when they yes. might be using some practical yes. stuff. And I always feel that the practical stuff in 1982 mm-hmm. works better than absolutely. Yeah. Always. Ex- yeah. Yeah. So yep. it's the next, so they wait. So they decide, so the wife is gone. They decide to wait till morning to go look for her. Right. Because it's nighttime when she's gone. Mm-hmm. And then we get that very dramatic scene <laughs> where she is on the top of a, a, a kind of cliff or whatever. They're all on the bottom. Yeah. And then she starts talking in alien alien tones. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, trans <laughs> translated, it goes, we are the race of the Goki Madaro yeah. from a planet far away. We have targeted planet Earth for quite some time and have now begun our invasion. Our objective is to exterminate the human race. The objective is close at hand. Within that, we hear... Noriku laugh before she has flung off a cliff by the alien evil, inhabiting her. Evil laugh. Evil conspiratorial yeah. laugh. And then, yeah. She jumps off the cliff and her face is 
burned off. Yeah, it sucked dry yeah. skeleton. It's uh not to draw it to Planet of the Apes specifically, but it looks similar to the kind of dummy that they used for uh yeah. the the woman scientist who never survived the initial crash uh uh in the beginning of Planet of the Apes when you have that like and, sting. Yeah. And many Mon- Monty Python sketches where people are falling off. <laughs> it does look like a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> so, ah! so yeah. <laughs> that's what I kept thinking. Anyway, uh, Mrs. Neal starts praying, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, obviously this is not good news. Uh, and then they start forming more theories, right? Yeah. Oh, the aliens I, brainwashed her. I do, or do aliens actually exist? I have to yeah. point out that when they go back into the plane, there's a snap zoom that I really like. I like a good snap zoom yeah. in movies. And if it's yep. done right and, the, and it closing him on closing the plane door, I'm like, yeah, I feel yep. like we're in danger. Um, yep. Yeah. They're trying to figure out what to do. And we get even more flashes of red more and black. More flashbacks. Exactly. More Vietnam. Yep. It's more Vietnam then, in here than Apocalypse Now. I'll tell you. No. That's right. And then the scientist is the one who's like, hey, we, you know, this is actually happening we should believe this and of course the politician uh does not believe and then the politician starts this human sacrifice plan right Mm -hmm. where hey maybe if we give them someone they'll leave us alone yeah Uh, and and we get who does he select to give yeah the american a foreigner yeah no one will ask too many questions less trouble later as he says (laughs) like (laughs) and uh uh and mono even says uh human sacrifice is as old as the hills and i'm like oh no uh sugiaka stops sugisaka stops them um and that um uh then they try to declare sugisaka as the potential victim when uh the bomber wants to be let in and yep, the bomber returns. Yes. Yep. Um, and uh, Mrs. Neal takes yep. aim and shoots Sugisaka in the arm. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Because she doesn't want him to open the door for the bomber. I yeah. Guess, presumably. And then they force him into the cockpit because obviously the pilot doesn't want to be any part of this human sacrifice plan. Yeah. So the proponents of the sacrifice plan are like, okay, just force this guy in the cockpit so we don't have to deal yeah, with him. Yeah. He's our hero character, Kazumi being yep. the, the female the female yep. love interest of, of yep. sorts. Um, and they're in the cockpit and the gang. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. throws the bomber outside again and the mm-hmm. yep. Uh, yep in the cockpit like Sugisaka does have a lot of this disbelief about humanity's actions which is very very poignant uh, and yes. it, this is all intercut with the bomber who did have a bomb this whole time yes and he lights it threatening to blow it blow them up and okay so okay so yeah. this is what i didn't get right so yes the bomber is threatening to blow up the bomb so that he can get back in the plane but why did he just throw the bomb at the hijacker who's approaching him i never understood that when you're facing a loaded yeah. goki what's the difference <laughs> i don't know exactly. it's like what it, you're right it is kind of just like <laughs> throw it. but once again yeah you, no questions asked in this movie you just roll with it yeah because yeah, he goes right to the edge of the plane and it blows a hole in the plane so he is dead yep. And yep. the plane is exposed now at this point. Uh, yep. The professor's leg gets hurt in the process. Yep. Um, yep. And Mano is demanding they get out of there. Sugisaka yep. will stay will, with Kazumi. Mrs. Right. Neil and Mano take off. Yep. And Mano and Neil rush um, off, uh, guns in, guns ablaze and guns in hand. Um, and they travail this rocky region. And as they travail yeah. it, 
Um, yeah. uh, he kind of leaves. That's when Goki comes up to them. The the hijacker exactly. comes up to them. Neil right. is cowering a little bit, and yeah. Mano leaves her, going like, "You're on your own, white lady." Yeah, and, uh, politician <laughs> just throws her at him. Basically, take take my wife, please. Yeah, take, yeah. <laughs> anyway. yeah, take his wife, please. Anyway. I take her anywhere then, except for the Goki land. <laughs> exactly, and then she's she's trying to shoot the hijacker mm. and then i wrote down just just like last week where bombs can't kill mothra bullets can't kill the hijacker oh i i wrote a note she's a terrible stormtrooper level bad shot <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, so so uh, the, the stormtroopers shoot the same as mrs neil <laughs> good point good point yes yes so so yeah so he um he yeah, goes in so for he, her. He, kills, he goes yeah. in for her. Very, very sensual kill there. Mm -hmm. Vampiric, sensual kill. Uh, the politician basically betrays the crew, locks them out of the plane because he comes mm -hmm. back to the plane, locks them out with the hijacker approaching. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, the hijacker essentially, I think it's burned with jet fuel. Yeah. They, yes. The, the yes, he is. Yeah. Three essentially coats him in jet fuel mm -hmm. and sets him on fire. Yes. It also looks kind of cool. I thought it was a cool looking scene. It, it is actually. Um, yeah. I actually like the way it was shot. There is a certain moment where you're watching a lot more imposed flames on one. It's like an, yes. it's almost like a, 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 a reverse rear projection. Uh, yes. But, it, but I like the layer of it. Like I, the chaos of the flames in the foreground. Yeah. I, it's similar to what we're talking about. I know it's fake, but it works for the moment. But, but it's better fake. I think there are just a lot of things in this movie which I enjoyed a lot more because they're fake. Because I don't want to see a person on fire. It's not pleasant. It's, you know, the realer it looks, the worse it feels right, I, to watch it. I, I can understand yeah. that because, like, that, yeah. there is something alarming about watching the thing from another world and looking at that burn suit sequence. Like, because yeah. you are just like, that That mind might die. He's got asbestos on him. He's going exactly. to die. Yeah. 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 So anyway, yeah. So the hijacker kind of crumbles. The blob exits stage left. <laughs> <laughs> Snaggle pusses out. <laughs> exit stage. I would love it if the blob was voiced by <laughs> Snaggle Puss. <laughs> Oh no! I what lost my body. What am I yeah. gonna do? Oh yeah. my God! There's a professor of biology. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, Hannah Barbera, if you're listening, I need a new dub of this movie. I mean, it could be kind of cool. Uh, yeah. So the blob exits the hijacker because the hijacker crumbles and then enters the plane. Oh, so, oh, like wait. He, said, he, yeah, he crumbles into dust. Yeah. He crumbles into <laughs> that, dust. Yeah. Who? How long do you think it took to make I that know. effect? I know. Is that a one take yeah. thing or do they have a backup one? I, this is I why mean, I wish it must have been one take. If it I, must have been one take. If I had yeah. production notes, like if I could have my wish of anything, it would be okay. Similar to how we how we have info about Super Raya's work, I want a, a layered detailed outline of some of these visual effects with materials and all because that dust sequence is like unnerving and I love it to death. It was great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I just loved everything about that whole scene. Yeah. Yep. And then um, then uh, the, yeah, the crew. The, so, okay. So the blob enters the plane. Yes, gets in the professor. Yeah, gets in the professor who then kills the politician because, of course, once again, the politician is an asshole, so he has to die. Right, correct. Um, and that's uh, the crew flees. Mm -hmm. Scientist chases them as as an assassin now, as an alien vampire now. Yep. Um, 
kind of distracted in the avalanche. The crew gets away. The scientist who all along, scientist is kind of like uh, Richard Dreyfus in uh, Close Encounters, right? Like he <laughs> wants, he so wants to be with these aliens. He's wanted to see these aliens all this time. So he he goes to the, he's called to the UFO. Uh, the blob exits him. And then the scientist also collapses and turns to dust. Yes. And we have Sugisaka and Kazumi fleeing <clears throat> at this point. And we're, 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 we are, we're near the end here. And there's a big twist in the end, <laughs> which is, I, uh, I have to admit, I kind of laughed when this happened, right? Because they're like wandering around what looks like a totally deserted Island. And then all of a sudden there's a cut and there's like a highway with a bunch of cars. It's, <laughs> Imagine the ending of the village, except you don't give a shit about how mishandled it is. <laughs> because so they magically yeah, arrived. Yeah. yeah. So all along there were cars, there's a toll booth, but <laughs> sidetrack for a second. Yeah, when ahead. they get there to the highway, it would have been amazing if you had a Planet of the Apes esque moment where he gets out on his knees and instead of a Statue of Liberty, yes. it's just a regular highway. You kind of <laughs> felt that way, right? You pan out. It is kind yeah. of like that, except he doesn't heston it up. In no. a sense, it's better. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, they yeah. go to the highway and people are in their cars, but they're dead. Everybody is And dead. we get a psycho homage because they yes. go to one of the toll booths. They yes. uh, they they touch the body of the person yeah. in the attendant booth and we get a normal. And Bates, normal Bates shot, and it's I exactly just, like that. Yep, I the just, disfigured face. It was really good. Which is so interesting yeah. to see Psycho being like visually to a T homaged eight years later in another country. Yeah, because yeah. I don't doubt for a minute that Psycho must have hit Japan at some it, point. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah very similar. Um, yeah, and they and then they go to like a I think what's a hotel? I thought I took that to be like a hotel lobby. Yeah, I couldn't tell yeah. what it, I thought it maybe a business yeah. building, but yeah, it, yeah. It, I could see hotel and that's, more dead people. Yep, yeah, more dead people. Some of them frozen in place, which I was like, yes. what's this all and about? <laughs> they don't all seem to have died in the same way, which was also unusual. Like they they're. They look different. Like the trauma they seem to have suffered seems to be different. But the Goki Midoro are good yeah, at the ways of torture. There's many yeah. ways to kill humans. That's what it feels like. Uh, That's what it feels like. So that, and then we get another A bomb. We get an A bomb flashback with that mm -hmm. red background again. Yeah. And the and the same alien voiceover. Wode, wode, wode. Yeah. Basically, yeah. basically the whole spiel that we got from yep. Nariku is back, and they're they like as they. They they run off into some kind of abandoned area, and Sukisaka yep. does his version of Heston, which is why did this yep. have to happen? Why? Yep. But it's too yep. late now, Doctor Zayas. Wait, never mind. Cut. Uh, yep. it, it's too late. Is the last words, too and late. we and we get this pullback shot that yes, I was like, I, I I mean, I know it doesn't matter, but I was trying to wonder, like, is the jerkiness of this an inability to do this helicopter shot smoothly or is this the film warping i couldn't tell uh, but it was one yeah. it was one of those things where i was like this could be either or but given the fact that this print has had issues, I think it might be a, even a combo of the two. Because you know, the jerkiness kind of worked for me, it, right? Yeah. Because the feeling I'm getting is that these are potentially the last two people on Earth and everything is falling apart. And I think that kind of, it gives you that kind of queasy feeling. 
from getting that jerkiness. I so, agree. I agree. It does. I have, liked it. Yeah. It's it's not it's not a bad shot. It was just yeah. my brain kicked in from working in film, going like, uh, how, why? Because only because helicopter shots weren't that foreign a concept like meanest yeah. or not meanest man mad 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 world has like yeah. elegant ones and i'm like it's not that hard to stabilize the shot but yeah we get up to earth uh at, from a from yeah. a from the point of view of flying saucers and the invasion mm, has more than begun news. Yeah, yeah it's such a it's such a gut punch of an ending you know uh, it's like so our I I, oh yeah, go I, on. I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic. Ending. I mean, it reminded you know you mentioned like um, Night of the Living Dead, like kind of a similar feeling, right? Uh, Where it's just such a hopeless situation. So I have a question, a, a question about that because in the same year you have Planet of the Apes and Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. Is this does this give you the same gut punch that? Night of the Living Dead feels, or does it feel more cynical? It's worse. I think this is worse because Night of the Living Dead is terrible, but it's low. It feels localized, right? It's kind of like for me, the sadness at the end of Night of the Living Dead is that this black man has managed to survive all of these zombies and then he's killed by white people, right? Right? Like that's what's just so terrible about that ending mm -hmm. here it's like there's no hope like you know basically it seems like the aliens maybe miscalculated a little bit forgot about two people who just happen to be wandering around and they're just coming to colonize now and it's all over that's that's it for earth there's no hope at the end of this one i feel it's the difference between this um like i i, I think i might have misfused the word cynical I feel like this ending is the difference between nihilism and cynicism because okay. this film has a nihilistic ending. Yes. It's, it's, yes. This is what yes. people think the end of no country for old men is. Right. Uh, and uh, cause they're wrong. It's not nihilistic. Um, but uh, the, whereas, whereas play of the apes and night of the living dead yeah. are so entrenched in personal interactions. It's people. Yes. Those are people problems. And these are like, universal problem yeah it's like, it's like aliens are coming right and, and we were so busy fighting each other that we let them win yeah and even the personal interactions in goki are very mm -hmm. much i i don't think this is a bad thing but the surface level world problems are so prominent that mm -hmm. it doesn't feel personal like that's mm -hmm. the only yeah, thing about I this agree. screenplay that i would criticize is that these characters feel like cardboard cutouts but they're, they're archetypes so, they're but, archetypes and we see them in every disaster movie but, but there's so but, much yeah. fun like but it's, i like them the it, interactions are great exactly it's like the towering and or like not towering in front of like mm -hmm. films like earthquake or like a roland yeah. emmerich movie these yeah. films have paper uh, have paper thin characters and yes. yet and you don't care about them like it, i actually cared about the pilot and the flight attendant it, right like i wanted them to be okay yeah and i think part of it's yeah. because everybody else is such a piece of shit that you yeah. have to latch onto somebody and the this right. is what you have. Um, I I want to talk about like how the the UFO design has this impressionist feel to it, where I don't feel mm -hmm. like it's strictly a model. I think it's like it it the glow is so strong from it that it yep. maybe covers up something that might have been cheap looking. So sure. Imagine if Ed Wood had the insight That's to film thing. Plan Nine from Outer yeah. Space in color with yeah. this idea in mind. Yeah, I mean. Okay, I love Plan Nine. It's it it was like during COVID, 
on a bad day when I was feeling sad, I just put on plan nine and just laugh my ass off. And I felt great. I just, it's so endearing and it's so charming and it's like auteurship at its cheapest and least talented, but still lovable. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And thank the world for Edward. I'm so glad that movie was made. Right. Mm -hmm. This is like, if actually a proper filmmaker had similar size budgets, but kind of more talent, more experience, better ways to do these things. Right. That Absolutely. It's, it's the difference. It, it, it actually, there's a, there's a, and so I, there's, this isn't a direct influence, but the, um, uh, the ingenuity is similar is, uh, and I, I will use a specific example. I took my girlfriend to go see escape from New York in a theater and that film's special effects are janky, but mm-hmm. I believe them because the filmmaker is clearly confident in their ability to work within a budget. Cause that movie was not made for billions of dollars mm-hmm. and the effects have the same level of ingenuity as they do in Goki where yes, I know this is fake, but yep. I am so on board with this premise. It, it's stylized, right? So that's where mm-hmm. we see. So noir, why is noir so amazing? Because they took low budgets and crappy sets and they turned down the lights, you know, and they made it work <laughs> through style. Same thing with German Expressionism, right? Like, yeah. why does Cabinet of Caligari have those weird sets? Because they were cheap, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. they made it work. Cheap doesn't have to mean bad, No, right? And I think that that's a very important lesson to learn because I think that we think about cheaply made films in this country on a, on a grander scale it's a constant thing throughout the world. The difference is we just see more of the American version of that because that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing all of the quote unquote crap films that come from other countries because mm-hmm. they're the nine times out of 10, it's not going to get imported to here unless it has some kind of Oscar value right. or has yeah. such popular culture cachet that it's unavoidable. Like Godzilla had such an impact when it first came out because even though it had rubber suits, it was so well shot that it became a phenomenon in this country. And thusly, any other sequels going forward, you would they would forgive the rubber suit. This is a an example of a film that I would have to imagine didn't get to the these shores. Uh, well, actually, I know for a fact it didn't get to these shores until rather late. It came in the seventies yeah. uh, to these shores, and the 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 development of a cult around it has a title for it that i was blown away by david callet's uh, eclipse series article writes uh, uh at least the greatest film ever to deserve the nickname bestowed upon it by its most ardent fans vagina face apocalypse <laughs> yeah i read that i was like i'm not going to say vagina face it's, come on it's it's it's, it's, it's... Yeah, I I understand where Khaled's coming from, but that is such a that that, the way the head splits open also looks like a Venus flytrap. I think that that's I I I don't think that that's not Khaled saying it. It sounds like I know he's quoting the cult fans. Yeah, Yeah. he's he's quoting the fans. And I think the fans are have an interesting thing going on in their minds when they when they call it that. Um, But uh, but I think that. But but that that name alone does suggest wackiness abound. Sure, and and I don't think that that's unfair because no. 
I mean, this film. I mean, that's how. I mean, I sold the wackiness to you initially when I was saying, "Hey, we should do this film, right?" I, right. I actually, I was using my Stefan voice, right? Like, yeah. This film has everything: <laughs> plane crashes, Vietnam War flashbacks, alien vampires. You know, it's it. How would you even fit all that in one film? It's unbelievable. Japanese hottest film is Goki Body Snatcher from Hell. <laughs> exactly. So I, I wanted to talk about like. We're we're this is like the ultimate in your face subtext compared to what we had with Mothra and even and even if you want to take it to Kajira, this is so in your face with its political commentary mm-hmm. and social commentary. Yes. Do, does that feel inefficient to you or does it work for you? Works for me. Okay. I, I think it makes maybe that's part of the reason we also still like it right because mm-hmm. it's not just what's on the surface there there's you know it's making a statement mm-hmm. um, yeah it clearly has an opinion about the world yeah um and i think it makes it more meaningful right I, I i i agree with you and i'm i'm generally a person who enjoys political satire no matter how subtle or how broad it is um mm-hmm. or social commentary no matter how obvious it is because I appreciate somebody trying because it means more to me for somebody to try that than yeah. to just stick to a cookie cutter formula. Um, it's why I, and, and this is not a dig against these movies because I do enjoy them. It's why I will tend to stand up for the worst political satire as opposed to a Marvel film because I never get the sense that a Marvel film is trying to speak about anything. I, it's not. It's just consumption. It is. And Marvel like films, Marvel films are exactly what a film like this is railing against, right? Yeah. Like, don't just be a blind consumer. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, they they, they yeah. lives they live is a film with the most you know, obvious yes. commentary. It literally yeah. says bye. But <laughs> I, no. I, I pr- gotta have the glasses though. Gotta have the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and you gotta have plenty plenty of bubble gum. Oh, it's that you're out yes. of it? Okay. Um yeah. But that, but that's my, that's how I feel about it. And again, it's not to, I'm not trying to isolate the Marvel audience. I think the Marvel audience might actually get a kick out of this film. I think they'd like it. I think, yeah, yeah, the style of it, I think they would like. You think yeah. James Gunn can go crazy? Watch Goki. Uh, exactly. But like, I do think that that like it, it speaks to why I was able to put up with lines going like, "All oh, your politicians are corrupted." Ha ha. Like that. That is <laughs> that is goofiness on on a on sure. another level. But I do feel like some of the brilliance that we've had talking about this and Mothra in tandem is that we get two two different ends of the spectrum when it comes to social commentary. Yeah. And both have their merits because what Mothra does brilliantly is that it's it's commentary is immersed in the lore, whereas this one is very much. The aliens are a cipher for something that that can uh, that can take advantage of our war torn scenario. Like they mm-hmm. are the most, they they are very paper thin aliens. Like I love the fact that they're just cut to the point. Like we're here to exterminate the human race. Okay. Bye. I know there's no preamble. No, no preamble. No, contact. no, no, yeah. no. Oh, and I mean, yeah. Look, if we, if we want to put this in the realm of reality, this is how most colonialism worked. Right. So if you, you know, I can speak just to, I know Indian history, you know, it's mm-hmm. a, how did, how did British, well, how were the British able to take over India? They, they would pit different groups in India against each other. Yep. Yep. And that's how they come in and take over. This is classic 
right? Mm-hmm. Classic maneuver. Or tra- um, or or training different uh different in, uh, indigenous and native peoples in this country against each other exactly. so that yeah. colonialism can take over in this country. Exactly. And yeah. so like, yeah, I, I, and the other thing that I will point out about this film is that like the the pop color nature of it. Yeah. This is something that is so entrenched in the 60s across yes. countries. Yes. It is. I love how that aesthetic has hold, held it. up as a concept that we yep. still use today. Yep. Yep. Like, and and I mean, obviously, we have the obvious Tarantino uh, element attached to this film with with specific visuals being utilized. But that mm-hmm. pop sensibility is is all over the all over the face of a lot of Edgar Wright's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there is there is plenty of fandom for films like these that then get carried mm-hmm. into the art you see today. I think it, it is, again, there's a lot of collective unconscious going on where mm-hmm. everybody's hitting the same genres at the same time. You can't tell where Hajime Sato is looking mm-hmm. at when he makes Goki, but mm-hmm. there's a bunch of things coming in at once. And mm-hmm. the wor- the market is wider open uh, at mm-hmm. this point in Japan where other things can be uh, analyzed. And, and it's actually, you know what's funny? This film feels as brash as Doctor Strangelove at times. Uh, mm-hmm. It it is very unafraid to make the statement it's making. Where I feel like the kaiju films are are making a kaiju's quick... more serious. Kaiju's mm-hmm. like yeah. this one. You kind of get the sense they know what they're doing, and kaiju's more earnest. Yeah, I feel like. yeah. This is yeah. It's, Goki is tongue in cheek, exactly. uh, tongue firmly in cheek. Whereas exactly. whereas the kaiju films are very like there's lore and mythology, and our fanboys yeah. will get upset if we make a wrong move. Uh, yeah. And that that that's I think a clear difference, and that's why I tend to prefer films like Goki. Over of course. I mean, this is this yeah. is also. I mean, it's very much a movie made for adults, right? This is not mm-hmm. a movie made for children or families. Like, this is this is a date night movie. A- exactly. Right? Um, I, I, uh, before we go though, do we have any final thoughts about Goki? Like, do we have anything significant that we haven't touched upon that we we would want to uh that would help sell this film to an audience who maybe still be on the fence, despite what we've talked about for the last two hours? I think it's campy fun. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to appreciate it on any kind of art film level to have fun with it, right? So you could walk into this just as if you were going to go watch the Steve McQueen blob film or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. It's just campy sci-fi fun. Yeah, um, And I it's agree. short and the, and the plot moves along at a really great clip. The interaction between the characters is very compelling. The visual effects, though looking fake, are super interesting to watch and um yeah i think it's really well done i agree with all those points i i think that this is a i think that even as each of these films really we've talked about with the exception of maybe a page of madness each of the films that we've discussed after that point have been ones that do not require a grand sense of the world bearing Mm -hmm. over you to enjoy them like mm-hmm. Mothra has austerity to it in its commentary, but it is also just a fun kaiju movie, uh, with with tiny tiny twins and and uh, and kids the sidekicks. Peanuts. Yeah, the peanuts. <laughs> you've got sidekicks all around. You've got a giant egg, um, and and Goki has some of the most wonderful looking special effects that the effects work like the like the head splitting in two doesn't get as insane as this until 1982 with John Carpenter's the thing. Mm-hmm. If you want an early version of that, this is your shot here. This yeah. is your shot. Uh, exactly. And I think that 
I think if you are looking for an unwind late night movie to watch with friends where you can giggle at it while enjoying it in the process, this is the yep. movie for you. I think this is the yep. movie for you. Um, yeah. Um, it kind of, in a way, almost brings like highbrow and lowbrow together. In a way. Agreed. Yeah, right? absolutely yeah. agreed. It yeah. is It is a, w- a wonderful merging of the two. You can be an intelligentsia or you can be a common film goer. Doesn't yeah. matter. You can enjoy this film regardless. Um, mm-hmm. On that note, Rashmi, what do we have coming up next? What What are we going to do? Where, where are we going from here? So we are going back into highbrow next time. I'm sorry to say the fun is kind of over. Ah, damn bit. it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going a couple years back in time. We're going back to black and white. Um, very much a new wave movie called The Face of Another. Mm-hmm. Um, Face of Another. This is, yeah, this is high art criterion you know, this is the usual kind of uh, type of fare that that we might see, but it's uh, it's it's basically the the main star is one of our good friends Tatsuya Nakadai, so mm-hmm. he's the main actor in this. The film is made by a director called uh, Teshigahara, um, and this is a film. Um, basically, the premise is there's a businessman who's in an accident and his face is really disfigured. And, and he's going to have to take his face off. Sorry, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that because there are some connections to face off. We will talk about oh, that. Oh, I was joking. Uh, You're serious. I know. I know. Oh, uh, but anyway, no, no, not in, not. Don't, don't worry. Don't worry. It's, uh, it's, a, it's so it's basically, so then the, you know, he talks to a psychiatrist cause he's kind of depressed about all this stuff. And mm. they basically decide, Hey, you know, maybe what we should do is we should get you like a lifelike mask. Uh, that oh, you can wear. Oh, oh, uh, God. Uh, oh, God. But then... Uh, sorry, I have like... I love the show Boardwalk Empire and the Jack Houston character wears a yes, mask to cover his yes, war yes, wounds. Yes, similar. similar but, yeah, you know, that creeps me out still. Whole face, not <laughs> yeah. just half the face, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, yes, a little bit like that. In fact, it does seem... A, uh, that's a good analogy in terms of what the mask is like because, I mean, it's clear it's a mask, but, um, but so he wears this mask and then as a result of looking different because of this mask, he begins to change. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of that age old debate about kind of like, who are you and how is that impacted by how you look and uh, and his behavior changes and he starts treating people differently. And um, so it's kind of an exploration of that. So, okay. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So, so yeah. until, uh, so we'll, 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 we'll continue our Kauai discussion with the face of another. Um, thank you all for listening in to YBR presents. And as always, please dig back into our previous series on Jacques Tati and on Alfred Hitchcock, just to figure out why we've gone on some of the paths that we have and just have fun. Uh, be sure to turn into yesteryear Ballyhoo review uh, for uh, original discussions with Rashmi on films like uh, High and Low, Tokyo Drifter, and uh, Branded to Kill, um, and The Third Man. Uh, not not uh, Japanese, but uh, quite a fun film to say the absolute least. Uh, but until all of that, and until next time, folks. Good night. Mm-hmm.